episode 127 hot shot scott i gotta tell you that whenever i go on twitter in the morning and i see mitch is trending what the name mitch just i'm thinking mcconnell what did this guy Ooh. get his freaking self into again <laughs> <laughs> i oh. gingerly click again. on it again thank you for that I ginger well thank you for and, that. but i saw cocaine mitch one great, time great way to start the show <laughs> Thank you very much. But when much. I saw Cocaine Mitch, I knew it wasn't you. I mean, obviously. Or or that was how you did the mornings all those years. I wasn't <laughs> sure. But every time I see Mitch, I'm like, please, no. Which Mitch was? It's it? always McConnell. Okay. Poor guy. He's always just getting pumped. So I wasn't there, trending? No, you weren't. That's good news, right? I mean, no. a lot of people want to trend, but eh, well, I'd be like to trend for the right way. I'd like for Mitch Unfiltered to trend. That'd be and great. the way that Mitch Unfiltered would trend yes. is if everybody just subscribed yes. and rated us on Apple Podcasts or write a review. If you really enjoy the show, become a patron for $5 a month by going to MitchUnfiltered.com and clicking Become a Patron. I added one this uh, over the weekend. I've single-handedly added one patron. Oh, I owe yes. you five bucks. That's, that's right. <laughs> we'll split it three ways with me, you, and Steve. I'll you, take my 166. You can catch our second weekly episode on Thursday mornings, 126P. Even included Jason Locke and Fora last week. We do a whole nother show. Yep. It's not just Mondays. It's Thursdays, too, for the patrons. So if you become a patron, you'll have access to all the bonus content. I got an email here that I wanted to share with you because it reminded me of one that I think you talked about a little bit on a conference call. We had another Mary Moore meeting, but it just wasn't at Mary Moore Park. Correct. Right? Yeah. Well, I was. You didn't know that. I sat up there. I thought we were all <laughs> <laughs> sitting out there in the rain with my... Where the hell is everyone? <laughs> we had another show meeting, ladies and yes. gentlemen. We've now had two. That's right. In two years? <laughs> Dear Mitch, overheard my brother... I know the reaction. I'm waiting for your oh, reaction. Boy. Dear Mitch, overheard my brother-in-law telling my sister the story of your dad tricking your mom into believing she had won the Florida lottery, yeah. which I told a couple of shows ago. And I asked him what made him think of you. That's when he dropped the news on me of Mitch Unfiltered. <laughs> it's like... I knew that was going to be your action. Uh, I had no earthly idea. Uh, Sorry, I'm not a social media guy. Pennies from heaven, whatever that means. You and Scott sound great. And who exactly is Scott? <laughs> great to have you back in my life. No one like you, Paul from Fife, Washington. It's just, it's unreal. <laughs> You've been doing this for two years and people two and are, a half. People who are like fans of you, they, they like you. They'd like to listen to you talking to a mic. No idea. You do it twice a week, three, whatever. I'm telling you, oh. there's at least 15 others like this. <laughs> at least, yeah. yeah. I told you I saw a, a comment on a, a Gas Man Facebook post. Yeah. I just happened to read the comments. So, hey, whatever, <laughs> hey, Gas, whatever happened to Mitch Levy? And luckily, someone jumped in and said he does a podcast with Ivy. <laughs> Good God. Really? Well, we, we got to take out. We got to call Ackerley to well, get a, a billboard. Maybe this is on me. I mean, I have spent, we have spent some money okay. on marketing. It's been mostly digital. So here's the thing. You know, when you have a limited budget, we have a limited budget. Yeah. Unless I hit the Mega Millions thing. Oh. We have a, did you hit the Mega Millions? I saw that you played for two and a half million. So did you hit it? I did not hit the Mega. Because you wouldn't be here if you, if you hit it. Well, yeah, I would have faxed in a picture of two middle fingers. <laughs> <laughs> have a nice life. <laughs> And not these two. No, 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 no. <laughs> One Double. on each hand. But I, I still haven't checked my, my lotto ticket. Because oh. you heard my math on the lotto ticket, right? Everyone else plays the Mega Millions because it's at a billion. But that's when I slide in and grab just the local Washington State lotto. Because that's just good, solid math right there, right? That's how that works. That's Eastgate State <laughs> University math. So I have a, an yeah. unchecked Powerball and an unchecked lotto. I did not win the Mega Millions. There you go. I still have two left. Is I it bad that I've played the Mega Millions and, and 
Powerball when they got up to like $800, $900 million. Yeah. A couple of different times I played each one. I've not checked any of them because as soon as I find out that nobody won the grand prize, I, I could have won $10 million. I, I, I have tickets sitting there yeah. from like two or three different mega millions and Powerball. But it's, it was like deflating. I was like, nobody won or somebody won in Maryland. I'm like, ah, I'm not going to even check. So for all but, I know... But if you get five out of six, I, I think, know, yeah. I know, I had no idea. Because the other thing is, I don't even want to take the time to go to the website and compare numbers. Because, yeah. You know, I have a ticket with like five sets of numbers on oh, it. I, yeah. I bought like five, five, whatever you call it, five plays or plays whatever, yeah, or whatever yeah. you call it. Yeah, right? yeah. So I just haven't taken the time to see if I, mm-hmm. for all I know, I'm $10 million richer. I, I think it's... I'm waiting for somebody to say, I'm waiting for something, to read something on the internet that says... Someone in Bellevue, Washington <laughs> won, but they have not stepped forward to claim their prize. And I, that's when I'll go check. I re- <laughs> that, now, can you lose. take the ticket, like in the old Florida days when my dad tricked my mom, yeah. you used to be able to take the ticket back to 7-Eleven, yeah. and they put it in the machine, and they spit it out, and they tell you whether you've won or not. Yeah, and it actually Can says, you do that? Yeah, but it, 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 says, it says winner to them. They go, nope, sorry, sir, you didn't win. I'm going to keep it. <laughs> you want me to throw that away for you? That's <laughs> why so I don't trust them. <laughs> I'm not trust someone at Safeway. No way, man. That's funny. I I, uh, I punch oh. the numbers in myself on the website. I don't I don't take oh, that chance. God. But I remember being wildly disappointed that, like, let's say you get six out of six. It's fifty million. Yeah. But five out of six is like four hundred grand. It's not. It's not like eighty percent of that. It's a lot less. No. So don't get your hopes Again, up. You get five East out of Kate's, six. Eastgate State Math <laughs> University of Southern. Well, Cro- I thought five out of six is well, hard. You know where we got off of this tangent. Normally, I don't know where we got off of these tangents is we did some limited marketing. We don't have an unlimited budget. Yeah. And the problem is when you do limited marketing for a podcast, they tell you, these pros, these consultants tell you, just do some do some social media marketing. You know, buy some some spots on Twitter, buy some spots on Facebook. You know, yeah. these guys... right. I got all the cockers that don't even know what, it, what the internet is. Make a spot during the Lawrence yeah, Welk so. show. During the Lawrence Welk, it drives me and, crazy. But yeah. I don't know what. But what I have, I mean, the best I can do is tell listeners to say, "Hey, if you know of any friends yeah. that used to used to talk about Mitch or KJR or whatever, just that's the best way. Otherwise, I don't know the answer to your question. The guy on the internet, hey, whatever happened to Mitch? I don't know. What do, what do you want me to do? You want me to go out there on the corner with one of those boards? <laughs> yeah, the sandwich, the thing you spin above the sandwich head. board. I don't think it's a sandwich board. But yeah, I know what you're saying. The <laughs> yeah, big, the, yeah. the, the, little, the big arrow. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I could do that. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer. My answer to you guys, I told you and Steve, yes. buy a, buy a sixty second spot on KJR. Uh huh. And they'll be thrilled to sell me that. <laughs> well, they might. Well, you don't have to voice. Have Steve voice it because he never was okay. on the air there. Do you think they might listen to what it's for? Uh, these okay. days, they, they might take it. <laughs> I don't know. They won't let Greg Bell be on the show. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay. All right. You think they're going to do an ad for me? Yeah, probably not. Uh, that that'd be that, that's our that's our demo. Those are our, our P ones. Go straight say. to KJR. That's right. And seven ten too. How about if I record myself calling into KJR <laughs> to the sales team? <laughs> I change my voice and I talk, and, and we we hear the whole story of me trying to sell, trying to buy a Mitch unfiltered ad. See what the sales be hilarious. Say. That would be awesome. <laughs> you gonna change your voice? That I'll do I'll do some voice that they've never heard before. That would be funny. <laughs> Just to see how far down the chain it goes till someone gets fired. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, dear Mitch, good interview with the Chambers Bay guy. Mm. But talk about misguided. 
hey, buddy, go get the PGA Championship because the U.S. Open is never coming back. I repeat, never coming back. Get your heads out of the frickin' clouds, Bob in Sacramento. We had the Chambers Bay guy on on the rumors that the PGA Championship that was pulled from the Trump location might end up next year at Chambers Bay because that was the the first rumor that came out when they lost, when Trump lost it was, what about Chambers Bay? What about Chambers Bay? So we have the guy on, and this uh, this particular listener is not is not uh, believing the U.S. Open return hype. That's the, oh, that's the story. So, gotcha. All right. Um, hey, Mitch, I got one more. Uh, time to change the name of your little show. He puts "little" in quotes, which means he heard the other email. Yeah. Unfiltered doesn't apply anymore. Why won't you or anyone else in Seattle media address the Seahawks elephant in the room? Would you like to try to guess what he's going to say? Why won't you or anyone else in the Seattle media address the Seahawks elephant in the room? What do you think the elephant in the room is? I'll tell you what he wrote the rest of his email in a second. Pete Carroll ain't got it no more. Time has passed. Pete Carroll's time has passed. He deserves oodles of credit for what he's accomplished, but it's over. Time for some new blood that sees the game the way it should be seen in 2021. Signed, Jeremy in Vancouver, Washington. But you didn't talk about that? You were, you were completely filtered? I think, we, I think we may have done it on a P-show. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm not sure we've done it. On, maybe we did do it on a regular I feel show. like you went for it. I mean... I went for it hard with Jason Lock and Ford. Look, look, I don't want to be the guy that says that Pete Carroll should be fired because I don't believe that. Right. I do believe... As somebody who's unfiltered, and maybe you agree, maybe you disagree with this. I, I In grand total, the guy takes him to the playoffs every year. They win 10, 11, 12 games. They mostly win a playoff game. Yeah, There's a lot of cities that don't have that. So I think in grand total, he deserves the right to probably go out when he wants to go out. But I do believe that the conversation, which isn't really had here in Seattle that often, you don't hear... The conversation of, you know, he gets out coached a lot. Yeah. He gets out prepared a lot. Can't handle the timeout thing. He makes mistakes on the sidelines in game a lot. His coaching staff doesn't doesn't make great adjustments in game to based on what's going on a lot. I mean, I think there's a conversation to be had of, you know, is Pete Carroll in 2021 what Pete Carroll was in 2012 or 2013 or 2014, whatever that the, the year is? Yeah. My my conclusion, and I and I, I feel like when I bring that conversation up, then it's Mitch saying Pete Carroll should be fired. I see. Yeah. I, you can't have that conversation without Mitch says Pete Carroll ought to be, and I don't agree. I don't believe that. Right. I don't think he should be fired. Yeah. But I do question some of his hires. I'm waiting to see who the offensive coordinator is. I don't feel like he's going to hire one of these like young, you know, creative. Right. Yeah. I, I I just don't. I don't. I don't know. You know, he wants to run the ball. It's 2021. People <sighs> throw the ball. In. So I think there's a conversation for Jeremy in Vancouver, Washington. But um, I, I, it, I'm sorry that I should change the name of the show. Is, <laughs> Mitch filtered. Very filtered. Yeah. Filtered Mitch. Yeah. Is he a way? I mean, we don't have to get into this, but do you think he's a way different coach at 69 years old than he was at 61 or 62? It's not like he sat out for 20 years and the okay. game passed him well, by. Well, I'll give you. I will give you the answer of I'll give you what Jeremy would say okay. in Vancouver to that. Okay? Okay. Ask the question again, Jeremy. Ask it to Jeremy. I'll give you Jeremy's answer. Okay. Ask that exact same question. Hey Jeremy, are, are we to say that P. 
Pete Carroll's a way different coach now at 69 than he was at, say, 61 or 60 or 62. Hot shot, that's the problem, says Jeremy. Okay. He's the exact same coach as he was. Oh, okay. And the game is changing. And he remains the same coach as he was 10 years ago. And the NFL is different 10 years later. And things are changing and the way we approach things are changing. And he's not able to change with it. That's what Jeremy would say. Okay. I don't know if that's fair because he didn't uh, coach in the NFL fair. for 20 years, 15 years. And then he comes to the NFL and is insanely successful. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. He had the Legion of Boom. He had some great players. No question. Yeah. He got real fortunate, as John Schneider did in the late stages of the draft, where they got a lot of guys that were paying for, playing for peanuts. He got a quarterback who was playing for three or four years on like a minimum salary so he could go spend money all over the place. Right. And then once he started to have to pay his players – that's when you saw this. Now, it didn't go all the way down, yeah. but I think the story started to change when all of those guys that were p- playing for nothing started playing for a lot. I think at that point, okay. some things changed. But, anyway. Yeah. I mean, Schneider made some moves that were great. I mean, the Marsh- no one else went out and got Marshawn Lynch. All these moves were great. They, yeah. all, they all deserve credit. Pete yeah, Carroll yeah. deserves credit. I mean, Russell Wilson in the third round. Right. That's right. And then having the guts to start him. Richard Sherman, <laughs> you know, whatever he was. Yeah. Doug Baldwin, an undrafted free. Yeah. yeah, they yeah. Get, but at some point, they become stars and then they got to get paid. And then you're playing, you're not in baseball where there's no salary cap. Right. It's a different it's game. It's too I bad guess. because Paul Allen should own a baseball team because he could pay $500 million. But yeah. uh, that's not the way it works. Anyway, uh, what else do we got? Uh, this is the tease, right? Oh, geez. Love the guests on this episode 127. Jason Hamilton returns to the show. Ooh. He's back. Jay Ham. I love Spencer Hawes. 11 years in the NBA, University too. of Washington. Very outspoken. Nice guy. He'll be back. But our number one guest, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I know you've probably heard this before. I think will be in the top five, maybe the top three, and maybe the top one of all Mitch Unfiltered guests over the last two and a half years. All the guests that all those Alta Cockers haven't heard because they don't know that Mitch Unfiltered <laughs> exists. That's right. <laughs> His name is Charlie Plum. I don't want to oversell it. He's the first guest. He's 35 minutes. The interview is 30. I could not stop because I didn't think anybody would want me to stop. Okay. Charlie Plum, 78 years old, May 12th, 1967, shot down by the enemy in Vietnam on his 75th mission over Vietnam, five days from the end of his tour, shot down, captured, imprisoned, tortured for two thousand one hundred and three days i'm going to repeat that captured imprisoned tortured for two thousand one hundred and three days six years an eight by eight cell at one point three people in the eight by eight cell now now 78 years old has been telling the story ever since wrote a book long time ago okay and you will listen to this man, and if nothing else, you will say, I don't deserve to ever be in a bad mood the rest of my... This guy right. is the most optimistic, positive human... Be- You'll be like, how, how... This is too good to be... This guy's too good to be true. Right. Yeah. Joking about it, you know. The way he looks at life, will, will, you will immediately question... I didn't like my sandwich the other day because it had cheese on it, (laughs) and I was pissed for three days. Outrage. Yeah, my iPad wasn't charged, and I was pissed. It didn't charge overnight. Who took my phone charger? I'm sick and tired of Brett taking my phone charger, right? right. Life sucks, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This guy, 2000 in in Hanoi, 
2,103 days. Tortured, imprisoned, and finally released. I was just, I was watching First Blood Part 2. It's called Rambo, I think. And he... Yeah, he, he helped a POW out and they had a quick discussion. The guy said something. He, he didn't know what year it was. I was yeah. doing the math. He was there for like five or six years. And yeah. I remember thinking to myself, eh, they're pushing it. I don't think people were they really there five or six years. I just watched that movie. And it, I was like, I don't know. That can't be true. When we start wow. when we start the other stuff segment. Yeah. I want to tell you, remind me right at the beginning. I was this close to telling him an, an old joke that my dad, one of my dad's favorite jokes. My dad had a lot of jokes. All dads had a lot of, my dad had a lot of jokes okay. that he loved. He had one that he told over and over again that during the, I swear to you for 35 minutes, I'm listening to a 78 year old, you know, really positive, really laughing, really jovial. You'll hear it. I really wanted to tell him this joke because he was known for in those six years developing a communication strategy amongst his peers and other cells by tapping on walls and knocking wires. They had a, they developed a whole language, like a Morse code language to communicate wow. with each other, to tell jokes, to, to how you doing this morning. Oh. He even says a lot of them had to, a lot of the people, the security people had tuberculosis, so they were coughing. So we learned a cough that meant hello. Oh and my he's, God. He spit it, man. Hello, how's your morning? <laughs> they developed a whole language through, and he was the, the centerpiece of that. And he said, that's when it turned. That's when I became hopeful. Again, when we were all able to communicate for the last three Jeez. years, they communicated by pressing little wires. And it was crazy. Amazing. Crazy. And I, I was so close, and I was like, is he going to find this in good taste? My dad used to tell a joke. He reminded <laughs> me of a joke that my dad used to tell, and I was this close. And then I decided I was going to tell it to him off the air after we finished. Okay. I was going to say, hey, Charlie, I want to tell you, my dad had a joke. I want to yeah. tell it, but I never even did. Oh. I never did. You didn't pull the trigger on that? A, yeah. Well, no. Uh, that's, that's- thanks, thanks a lot for that. Uh, I think that... Um, I just didn't want to run the risk of of, of minimizing or or being uh-huh. dismi- him feeling that the joke is dismissive of what he even though I know for sure in my heart yeah. he would have laughed like hell at this joke. Well, he sounds jovial. In, in and, fact, you know. he probably have, has heard the joke before. And you're going to tell it in the other if stuff. If you segment? remind me at the beginning okay. of the other stuff segment, I'll tell you the joke that I wanted to tell to Charlie Plum. But anyway, I am waiting on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for you to text me or tell me what you thought. <laughs> okay. Of the of the thirty five minute interview with former prisoner of war for six years, Charlie Plum. I need this guy, Cap, Captain Charlie Plum. I need this guy to come over and talk to Piper a little bit, who was bored <laughs> yes. out of her mind, complaining. For, this, I mean, this guy will get on the Zoom with her tomorrow. If oh, you okay. Want. Oh yeah, I, I, that's oh, what yeah. I need. He gets paid a lot of money to do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> She's sitting around with an iPad and uh, iPhone and uh, complaining. Uh, and, uh. So Charlie Plum, Jason Hamilton, Spencer Hawes. You know, listeners might be tired of hearing it, but where would we be? Where would we be without our signature sponsors and partners like the Kirkland office of Gill Mortgage? 30-year fixed rates in the twos. More and more unfiltered listeners are spending those seven minutes on the phone with Jordan Flowers or a member of his team. 425-250-3150. Incredible monthly savings. 
could be available to you through a refinance, the Kirkland office at Gill Mortgage. Evergreen Golf Call, tax advisors, certified financial planners, experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement, planning, taxes, and investments all under one roof. Check them out, evergreengk.com. More than just a financial advisor, Evergreen is everything wealth. Hard to believe, but Zeke's Pizza is growing during these uncertain times. An 18th location that opened a few weeks back in Kenmore near City Hall with dining out for the most part on hold during the shaky weather. Zeke's delivery is incredibly reliable. Download the Zeke's Pizza app and then have pizza and beer at your door in no time. Homegrown in the Northwest. And Daniel's Broiler, if you have a birthday or anniversary or a special occasion, don't hesitate to celebrate with Daniel's Broiler. Pick up or have it delivered. A special bottle of Veuve Clicquot remains at an incredible price of 40 bucks to start the year. Daniel's Broiler straight to your door, making your home a world-class steakhouse. Here we go. Episode 127. Excited for it. Starts right now. Unfiltered. Did you see Alex Rodriguez? Yeah. Hop-nobbing with Barack Obama. Yeah. Elbow bumping, yeah, fist right. bumping. Yeah. A lot of Alex. And I got to tell you, he bothers me. It's not the steroids thing. It's not the cheating thing. There's an Alex thing that bo- It's not the leaving Seattle thing. I, I don't know what it is. Unfiltered. When you think Philip Rivers, yeah. do you think Hall of Famer? Was he ever like the best quarterback in the NFL during his era? I mean, was he ever? Was he ever even one of the top three or four quarterbacks of his era? Brady was always better. Manning was always better. Aaron Rodgers. Breeze is always better. Rodgers is always better. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 127, now officially, officially, officially underway after a 19-minute tease, by the way. Okay, no, that wasn't too bad. Yeah. You were talking about the earlier the Seahawks and, and the game may have passed Pete Carroll by. Yeah. And then you watch Patrick Mahomes throw the ball underhand. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like could you Travis get more Kelsey. creative than chucking the ball? Hit the game's so easy for him. He'll throw it left-handed, too. You've seen him throw it left-handed. He's the first one to do no-look passes. Oh, no-look passes, yeah. I mean, yeah. he's throwing it underhand yeah. in the AFC yep. championship, and, yep. we're, and we're the most stale offense in the history of offenses. You said it, not me. Kills me. Absolutely kills me. Chiefs versus Bucks. Yes. In Tampa. We're going to have a home team in their home field in a couple of Sundays. How yeah, do you feel about that? You brought that up. You brought that up last yeah, week. I sure did. And I, I wasn't aware of that. And yeah, people are pissed. Oh, really? How did Hotshot Scott not know? <laughs> Is he? Does he really pretend to be a sports guy? How did he not know that? What vibe did I get off? Give off that I pretend to be a sports guy? By the way, I mean Christ. I was on a morning show uh, for ten years. Yeah. Pop yeah. culture. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, anyway. Uh, yeah, Tampa. I mean, do you think these Maybe guys? Maybe it's better that people don't know that Mitch Unfiltered exists. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> do you think these guys are happy to be sleeping in their own beds, or do you think they sort of look forward to maybe getting out of the house and traveling I don't think to they a different will. city? I don't think, oh, to a different city? Yeah, yeah. No, I think they're, they're happier at home. I think they'll be in a hotel there, too. They yeah. won't be in their house. But uh, Chiefs versus Bucks. I mean, we all want the Seahawks in there. We all wanted, or I wanted the Dolphins in there. Yeah. But, I mean, if you're not going to have your favorite team, Chiefs versus Bucks, Mahomes versus Brady. Interesting. You think the networks? What's wrong with it? You think CBS, who's doing the game, is is disappointed with Mahomes versus Brady in the Super Bowl? It's great. Brady is back in the freaking Super Bowl. I was saying that all He's day to back myself. In the, his first year on a new team, he takes him to the Super Bowl. 
What is Bill Belichick? That what are Patriot fans thinking? He didn't even wait to the second year to take him. <laughs> right. He took him to the Super Bowl in the first year. Come I on. Mean, has Belichick in your mind? Has his stock gone down a tiny bit as the greatest coach ever? A little bit. Well, I never thought of him as the greatest coach. Well, ever. I think technically he has to be the greatest coach ever. There was whether a guy like with a not. jaw, a chin in Miami. Oh, okay. Okay. On paper. Yeah. He's the best coach ever. I think it I think it takes a hit. Yeah, I do too. I think it takes a hit that he loses his quarterback. The quarterback goes and wins immediately, takes it, and his team sucks yep. the first year back. Yeah, I think it probably does. Yeah. Not a lot, but I think it probably does. That's what I was thinking the whole time. I sat in that chair to your right, up there to your right on November the 29th, hot shot, and on one of these TVs, uh-huh. I don't remember if the Seahawks were playing at the same time, but one of these TVs I watched the Tampa Bay Buccaneers host the Kansas City Chiefs on CBS. On November 29th, Tom Brady versus Pat Mahomes. And I do, and they replayed it. I remember Tony Romo saying at the end of the game, I won't be surprised if they're playing again in the stadium in a few months. 27-24 was the final. Okay. That'd be a great Super Bowl, wouldn't it? Well, it was 17-0. I don't know if you remember the game at all. Tyreek Hill had 206 yards receiving in the first quarter. Oh, really? (laughs) God, he's such a beast. I know he had some off-field stuff, but on the field, he is such Oh, a, my God. It's a, is he not a difference maker? It's a different what? level. He's, yeah. like, playing at a different level than everyone else. He's he's a video game guy. He's, yeah, he the, tur- he's the guy you hit turbo on, That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They let 17 nothing. Mahomes, by the way, finished, if you want a, a little sneak peek, maybe, 37 to 49, 462 yards. 462 yards against Tampa the first time around in three touchdowns. Brady went 27 to 41, 345, three touchdowns and two interceptions. Tampa Bay lost the game 27 24, and they were 7 and 5 after that game. 7 and 5, and now they're going to the Super Bowl. So they st- it was the 12th game of the season, and now here they are going to the Super Bowl. And Green Bay is not hot shot, Scott. There's that all-important first-round bye everybody kills well, themselves over trying to get. Well, I, I, have a f- I have a theory on that. I've always thought that the first-round bye is vital, yep. especially for the second-round game, for your first game. You have a huge advantage. I always thought, and I think I said it on this podcast, that the advantage of the bye diminishes as you go to the third week of the playoffs okay. where you have played a game the previous week. I think where you really get the benefit of the bye is in your first game where a team that had to beat the shit out of each other to, right. to get there then has to turn around, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And then, of course, everybody's talking about Sunday. Was this Aaron Rodgers' final game? There's going to be a divorce, maybe, 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 maybe not. Um, you have Jason Lock and Fora already bugging me, telling me on Twitter, watch out for San Francisco. Oh, I don't want that. He played his college ball in the yeah. Bay Area. I think he's from California. Oh, who needs that? Okay, I resign. I think I resigned as a Seahawks <laughs> fan. Please, no Aaron Rodgers in San Francisco. No, it's no like, Aaron. Don't you feel like the Seahawks play them enough anyway? I mean, how many games have the Seahawks and Packers played against each other? It feels like in the past 10 years. They're always playing the Packers. We don't need to then add them to the division. Two times a year? Yeah, I'll pass. Yeah, it's no good. I think they become literally the Super Bowl front runner immediately when he goes. More than Kansas City, more than Tampa Bay, more than New Orleans. I, yep. I think as soon, if Aaron Rodgers were ever to end up in San Francisco colors, they would immediately be the Super Bowl contender and a pretty hefty one or the the, the front runner. But how about the uh, the controversy? The, so you've got you've got some swirling controversy after Sunday's games. You've yes. got the 
the decision to kick the field goal on fourth and goal from the eight with about 2.15 to go down eight. That was weird. And you've got the pass interference call on the subsequent possession where the Bucks then run out the clock because they get a, on a third down, they throw the yep. ball, Brady. The grabbing of the jersey. This that is one? the guy from Washington. Yep. Yeah, the yeah. Grabbing of the, Ke- yeah. Uh, Kevin Kevin King. Kevin I think King. Is, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have you have a you have a stance on either one of those two things, or do you want me to just blab? Well, it's it, real quick. It's just funny that um, the Packers have already fired Mike McCarthy again for this. <laughs> for some reason, they just blame everything on Mike McCarthy. By the way, the last guy to, to win the Super Bowl uh, for them was Mike McCarthy. And the but- most annoying thing about Mike McCarthy was what? Oh, uh, I don't know. The pencil in the cap. Oh, <laughs> remember no he used idea. to put the pencil or the pen yeah. in the side It'd of his baseball cap yeah. and then it would stick come down yeah, remember yeah. I said oh I yeah. hated that <laughs> really I didn't it didn't oh, bother me I just wanted to punch him in the face <laughs> yeah when, when, when it was I and was, yet Charlie Plum's not bothered uh, go ahead I'm sorry <laughs> fourth down I mean you're at the eight you really are going to kick a field goal I wasn't sure what what five points how that was much better than eight I, I didn't understand kicking that field goal at all you're at the eight how many times are you going to get that offense down to the eight yard line it's yeah. pretty close. Well, the idea, I mean, I can explain to you the, the theory. I mean, you don't need me to explain. Yeah, I, yeah. You're down eight. You kick the field. It's fourth and goal from the eight. Yeah, I know. Now, you got to consider some things that aren't being talked about. If you go for it and miss it, you st- the reason to not go for it, according to the coaching staff, to kick the field goal is you need eight. It's fourth and goal from the eight, not the one or two, but we'll come back to that. Okay. Um, and you've got two-minute warning, and three timeouts. you got four timeouts left. Yep. So let's get the three, because we might not make the two-point conversion anyway. We might have to. We might need two, two possessions anyway. Right. So let's get the three, kick it off, stop them, call the timeouts, and then go win the game. Yeah, the now, problem is now the, other, the other idea is if you go for it from the eight-yard line and you miss it, you still have the four timeouts. Yeah. You got them now back at the eight instead of having them back at the 25 or 30 after the kickoff, right? Yeah. So there's lots of different ways. Um, yeah, the big one is you're handing arguably the greatest quarterback in the history of the game the ball. Well, that's interesting <laughs> that you say that being the big one because that's not the one that everybody's talking about, but I think you've hit some. I think you've hit on a, on a very important point. The world is saying it was stupid. Yeah. The world is saying it was stupid mainly because you've got one of the greatest quarterbacks in the world on your team. Why take the ball out of his hands? Yeah. I, I agree with you. Okay, yeah, you're not only taking it out of his hands, but you're putting it into the hands of probably the worst guy in the NFL's history to put it in the, the hands. <laughs> That's right. So I don't actually think under certain circumstances that that was a bad play. As a clock management expert that I am. Yes, you are. I think if the, if the situation were different, if the other quarterback was – Cam Newton? Cam Newton. Tua. I I don't know. 75 or 80% of the quarterbacks in this league. And your your defense was having a good day instead of having a bad day. Yeah. I could see, from the eight, I could see going ahead and taking the three. I think where, to me, it becomes a terrible decision is it's Tom Brady. And and he's dicing you up the whole day. He's carving you up the whole day, right? So just go for it on fourth down. But the, here's my issue. And so everybody made Matt LaFleur to be the the guilty party, and people were feeling sorry for Aaron Rodgers, and they were asking him after the game, how do you feel about it? It wasn't, wasn't my decision, yada, yada, yada. But I think we're 
taken our eye off the ball a little bit. Okay. Because there was another decision that was made about 15 seconds earlier, or maybe 30 seconds earlier, that nobody's talking about that was also was as, as equal a bad decision or worse than not going for it on fourth down. Was it a decision and, by Rodgers? It was a decision by a quarterback yeah. who, if he took the ball and raced to the pylon on third down, yep. probably would have scored the touchdown and had a chance to tie. I tweeted out, would 25-year-old Aaron Rodgers have run here? I've seen Aaron Rodgers run at, what is he now, 32, 30, whatever he is. Yeah. He still can run. Right. He still could have scored a touchdown on that play. Yep. Now, some would argue with me. I've sent out a picture. I have, I, I've actually tweeted out, Mitch uh, underscore Seattle, a picture of the whole field when he threw that ball. He chose to throw the ball back. They tell you never to throw it back across the field. Yep. He threw it across the field and double cut. He had no chance on that pass. That that pass had more of a chance to be intercepted with the two guys there than it had to be incomplete. If you look at the video, you look at my picture that I tweeted out, he is 75% sure if he just darts to the pylon, the right pylon, yeah. to score the touch, he made a bad, bad decision. Now, some say, oh, no, there was a guy here, the guy there. Okay, if he doesn't score in the other 25%, he gets down to the one or right, two. Right. And then do you think Matt LaFleur is kicking the field goal from the one or two? Of course now not. it's fourth and goal from the one. Okay. Yep. We could talk about Matt LaFleur's decision all we want. Number 12 on the third down play made a horseshit decision. He's great. He's yep. a Hall of Famer. He had a good day, whatever. He made a horseshit decision. He could have scored a touchdown on that play if he would have darted to the to the pylon. That's I what I have to say about that. I tweeted the same thing, and I went back and watched it. And the two defenders that made that would have had to peel off and go get him, they were actually moving to his left. So th right. th their momentum was they would have had to stop and none come of those, back and get okay, him. Okay, no, none of those guys are going to get him. The only guy that was going to get him, in my estimation, there was a guy in the corner of the end zone where he would have been running towards that was covering a guy. Okay, he could have come off this guy, but you got to understand, even at thirty-two, whatever, whatever age he is, thirty-five. He would have been going full speed. Yeah. That guy would have been coming up to the goal line. He'd be going full speed. One move, one dive, yeah. one juke, one – I mean, I, I'm telling you, I think he scores on that play if he, if he runs. I tweeted out the picture of Elway doing the helicopter move. Yeah, 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 I remember. Like yeah. throwing your uh, – talk about a guy laying it on the line. Should I am getting that effing that first down. Just go, yeah. baby. Yep, I go. know. Go. Yeah, bummer. Sad. And I think, was it Pierre Paul was maybe chasing him? He was on his left. Yeah. He was not going to be a, he's everybody. Not catch no, him. he's not no. catching him. He had a head start on Pierre Paul. He was yep. not going to catch him. Yep. He's not. I'm not even sure Pierre Paul was even going to try to catch him. <laughs> right. <laughs> at that point. Yeah. At that point. You guys get him. He's thinking about fireworks at that point. Oh, man. Yeah. Poor guy. The pass interference call? Yay, nay. Oh, they haven't been making that call all day. They've been letting them play all. There's been lots of holdings both ways. You can't make that call. I heard a lot of people tweeting at me. Mitch on underscore Seattle. Uh, a lot of people tweeting at me, you can't make that call. That's a terrible call there. And then I run the replay back, and I literally see Kevin King grab the guy's shirt just as he's delivering the ball. And the he's not just grabbing his shirt. You could, it, It's like yep. three feet. I mean, he's, he's yanking on the guy's yep. shirt. That's your is, evidence. Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah, you have to okay. make it. The, the first – my, my point would be I don't think it's pass interference because I think – if you're going to call pass interference, then you've got to ask yourself the question, was the ball catchable? Go back and watch that pass. Uh -huh. I don't think that wide receiver was catching the ball under any circumstances. So I might have said it wasn't pass interference, but the more I watch the replay, the more I'm, co I'm convinced it was defensive holding.
because the hold, if you watch it real closely, okay. frame by frame, the grabbing of the shirt and the expansion of the shirt happens just before he delivers the ball. So that can be defensive holding. Now it doesn't matter whether it's catchable or not. Defensive holding is defensive holding. Yep. It's it's five or ten yards and an automatic first down. So I would have called that defensive holding. But this notion that you don't call anything there because they had let that go the rest of the game, I find preposterous. Nobody wanted or wanted a game to end on a penalty less than me. Like, I hate it. Like, I want right. to see guys battle and make right. plays. You have to make that call. Right. You just have to. And it sucks. And, I, you know, you talked about, well, it wasn't catchable, but if somebody grabs your jersey, it slows you down. You know, you lose a, like a oh, second or, or two. Yeah. So he, he may, it may have been more catchable had he not been grabbed. Maybe. So, maybe. Yeah. Well, you can't let a guy grab your shirt no, and yank yep. your shirt. No way. Nope. I, don't, I don't care how the game was officiated. Yep. You cannot, you cannot not make a call there, in my estimation. Not yep. that I had any – I had no skin in the game. I didn't care one way or the other. You were rooting for anyone? I was probably rooting for Green Bay by 51% because I picked them. Because oh. <laughs> I told you that I think the Green Bay is going to play Kansas City in the Super Bowl. But, but other than that, I had no, I no keep, betting interest. I will give you credit that about eight, nine weeks ago, you did say you liked the Bucks a lot. I think, oh, they, yeah. I mean, they were. At one point, they were the best team in, in the NFC, yeah. and then they were the, not so good. For about three weeks, they weren't so very right, good. Right. But yeah, I remember yeah. you saying this, you know, yeah. we're, we're talking they, about the Saints and the Packers, but this, this Bucks team. Well, that defense, that, that defense underachieved in like the middle portion of the season. And if that defense plays well against Kansas City, they will win. I, I, don't, I don't know that they will, but yeah. I think that that defense, I like the Buccaneers. I like the players in the Buccaneers defense. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I do. Pierre yeah. Paul was a great pickup. Yeah. I was wondering earlier about, you said something about Patriot fans. Do you think Patriot fans are punching holes in their walls seeing Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, or are they rooting for him? I'm trying to figure it out. I, I don't know. I can no, see it both not. ways. Because I, I tweeted out, you know, Patriot fans, are they? And a friend wrote back, nah, they're, they're hedging their bets, I bet. I bet Patriot fans are, are rooting for Tom yeah. and they're happy. I don't know if I'd be so happy if my team let Tom Brady go and now he's in the freaking Super Bowl and my team went 7-9. and nine. What do you think about that? About where, where are Patriot fans' heads for the most part, if you had to guess? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. The the best way for me to answer that is to kind of bring it closer to home. If Dan Marino were let go by the Dolphins Mm -hmm. and went somewhere else in the final twilight of his career and and was playing in the championship game, I would have been rooting like hell for Dan Marino. Okay. And he didn't win anything in Miami. Yeah. Now, if you change it to make it similar where he's won seven or however, how many how many has Tom Brady won? I think Five, six, been six. there ten. If, if, if Dan Marino won zero, I would have been rooting for right. him. Right, okay. If he won six, I would have even been rooting for him. I mean, I was a huge Dan Marino fan. I wanted that guy to go back to the Super Bowl, and it didn't matter – it didn't matter where it was. So, but I don't know. Yeah. I can't speak for Patriots fans. Yeah, I'm curious. If anyone's a Patriots fan, let me know. Okay, let's put it on you. If Rick Meyer, <laughs> great example. <laughs> Screw Rick Meyer. We would have been Super Bowl champs with him. <laughs> Rick Meyer. We can't touch out Scott in good conscience. Yeah. Wait for the other stuff segment to do a couple of the. I don't know how many RIPs you've got. Thirty-seven. You've- <laughs> yeah. A rough well, week. two of them. Yeah. Two of the 37, okay. I don't think, can wait to the other stuff segment. Yeah. They deserve a little more respect. I would agree. That. Yep. And they both mean something to me. I don't know if they meant something to you. Do you know the two I'm talking about? I think I How do, How about yes. if, I, if I play some audio of the two of them at the same time? He came up as a second baseman. A lot of people forget that. And he was known as a doubles hitter when I first saw him play. That's what he did mostly because he had people like Matthews and Adcock around him. But slowly and steadily, Hank Aaron built a remarkable career, 23 years, and he broke Babe Ruth's record. And he's an executive with the Atlanta Braves and has been for a long time. And he has a new autobiography out called I Had a Hammer. 
from HarperCollins. There you see its cover. You can read it in a day or two. It is a terrifically well-written book and a very honest book and a surprising Larry book. And we'll it. start there, Hank. Surprising <laughs> in the fact that I've interviewed you a few times over the years. You get into things in this book you never liked to discuss publicly in the past. Racial tensions, things that happened to you, your views of the game. Why now? Well, I think uh, there were several reasons, Larry. I, uh, 1976, after I retired from baseball, uh, uh, there was a number of writers that came to me wanted me to write a book. Uh, I was not interested in writing another baseball book. I said there's more to Hank Aaron than just hitting 755 home runs. There's more to Hank Aaron than leading the league and runs batted in. I wanted to write a book about Hank Aaron. And in order to write a book about Hank Aaron, it had to include some of the things I had in the book. Uh, I was born in 1934 and, uh, and uh, uh, came up and started playing baseball, of course, in 1953. So there was a lot of things that was happening in this country where it was separate but not equal. You know, we were able to go any place we wanted to go, but we were, we were not able to go into hotels to sleep. We were not able to drink at, sort of, uh, at water fountains and all of these things. So I decided that if I was going to write a book, I was going to be honest with not only myself, but honest with the people that I was going to write. There are the two RIPs in one piece of audio. Yep. November 19th, 1933, Larry King was born. Same year as my dad was born. Hmm. Henry Aaron, February 5th, 1934. They were almost exactly the same age. 1934, the same year my mom was born. Oh, there you go. So the two of them we lost in a matter, I think, of 24 hours from each other. I think so, yeah. Do you have... Uh, you have any thoughts? Did, they, did, it, did it move you? Did it hit you? Did either one of them kind of uh, make you think? Yeah, I, well, first of all, he talked about the, the racial aspect of his career, and it's like just kind of like that all came flooding back. You know, you just sort of try to block things out of your mind, but I read that he got 3,000 pieces of hate mail a day. It's like, wow. As he was getting closer, oh. as he was getting closer to April 8th, 1974, which I'll tell you about. I can imagine. As he was getting closer and closer to Babe Ruth, and think about that, Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth. Let's put Barry Bonds aside for a second because of the steroids. Yeah. Home run title, Babe Ruth, and then Hank Aaron. Nine guys voted Hank Aaron no for the Hall of Fame, yeah. his first ballot. Please don't get me started on but baseball, right? What I was going to say is, as he was getting closer to April 8th, 1974 and breaking the record, he was getting day after day... Don't you dare break that record. We will kill you. Right. We will kill you if you break that record. Yeah. Now you got to go play That's baseball. What, now go play baseball. Right. Go, go in an, focus. In an open stadium. Right. With very little security. Right. Go play baseball. But that's the kind of – and that was day after day. You will die if you break the great Babe Ruth's record. That's what was happening in his world. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah, so that's that's the stuff I was thinking about when I was yeah. reading about him today. I don't I don't really remember him. He's before my time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of before my time too. Kinda. I can remember him rounding third and a couple of fans running well, out. Oh, you've seen the video a million times. Right. Of that. You don't remember that. You just remember seeing the video of that. You wouldn't remember that because you, you, you yeah, were I, in nineteen seventy four. I I remember yeah. it live. Oh, you do. Okay. It's the first. Honest to God, it's the first memory. My my first baseball memory. It's my oldest baseball memory. I don't know how to phrase that yeah. so the first thing that I can recall about baseball was that April 8th 1974 I was going to be seven years old three days later okay and I remember sitting at 842 Lakeside Drive with my dad and my <laughs> brothers and my mother in our family room and I remember watching the game it was Monday night 
There was a question in 1974 whether it was even going to be on TV. I remember, and that's really my first memory. Now, I would become a Braves fan. He would be pretty much gone when I became a Braves fan, just a little bit later. But I remember April 8th, 1974. And then in subsequent years, reading about what he was going through. This guy, I, I don't even know how to put it into words. He was a man of immeasurable grace and courage. Soft-spoken. I'm going to play an interview for you here in a sec. Just everything about that guy was just pure class. Yeah. I, re- I had a real connection to him because he was an Atlanta Brave. They trained in my hometown. My dad worked for the longest time in West Palm Beach across the street from Municipal Stadium. I've told you the story. Yeah. I used to go to his office and then walk across the Palm Beach Lakes Boulevard to Municipal Stadium where the Expos and the Braves would train, and I would go to spring training games. That's the, that's where I learned to become an Atlanta Brave fan. We didn't have a baseball team in Florida, so I became a Braves fan. I remember you were looking for Dale Murphy, and Dale Murphy told you you should have gone to the golf, golf course. Golf, <laughs> golf course, right. When you took the left off of Palm Beach Lakes Boulevard, I know this doesn't mean anything to you, but it, it will in a second, to go to my dad's office... The road was called Forum Way. He, he, he worked in a place called the Forum Place. Okay. My dad did. If you took a right off of Palm Beach Lakes Boulevard, instead of taking a left, Hank Aaron Drive. Hmm. Hank Amazing. Aaron Drive, right there. He got a home in, in our hometown. He spent many years of his life. He was out in the community. I mean, this guy was incredible. And then you read shit like this. This is what he told the New York Times. April 8th, 1974, really led up to me turning off baseball, turning off baseball. It really made me see for the first time, this is Hank Aaron to the New York Times, it really made me see for the first time a clear picture of what this country is about. My kids had to live like they were in prison because of kidnap threats. And I had to live like a pig in a slaughter camp. I had to duck. I had to go out the back door of the ballparks. I had to have a police escort with me all the time. I was getting threatening letters every single day. All of these things have but a bad taste in my mouth, and it will never go away. They carved a piece of my heart away. Ugh. That's Henry Aaron to the New York Times. Right. I mean, yeah. He should be – He. no one's got a greater baseball memory than him, right? He's the home run like, – and he still can't even really enjoy it. Baseball scarred him. This country scarred him for life. And then there was this appearance yeah. with David Letterman. <laughs> Recently voted into baseball Hall of Fame. Here's Mr. Hank Aaron. Hank? You heard this? Pleasure to meet you. That was, uh, that's exciting to see that. Uh, I guess you've seen it several times by now, huh? <laughs> I get a little goose pimples on Yeah. Did yeah. you uh, uh, get a, a phone call from the White House uh, after that, or...? Uh... <laughs> Believe it or not, I did. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the funniest thing about that day, that night, um, after I hit the home run, I went back to left field, and I was standing in my position to catch a fly ball, and Donald Davis and our traveling secretary was running down left field line. He was telling me the president was on telephone. And I said, well, fine, Donald. I said, but what do you want me to do, stop the ball game? I said, just put the president on a hold and I'll be right with him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sure enough, right after the end, I went running up the steps and coast president was on telephone. And he was inviting myself and my wife to be his guest at the White House. Uh-huh. This, now, this would be President Nixon. Mm-hmm. Right. 
<laughs> you said it. <laughs> but anyhow, I answered the telephone. He said, he said, Henry, I said, I would like for you to, uh, to be my guest at the White House. I said, what fine, Mr. President. I said, thank you very much. I said, when do you want me to be your guest? He said, as soon as possible. Hell, I didn't get there quick enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there you go. Imagine, uh, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we're chuckling and stuff because I was thinking about when he was when he was rounding third in those two fans. I'm, yeah. Imagine how scared you would be or I would oh, be after, after what he went through the year yeah. or so leading up. Now you got two people running. Luckily, they were happy for him and they were, yeah. you know, patting him up. But yeah. I'd be scared out of my mind. He just kept trotting like, you know, tough like guy. He's better than me. Uh, graceful. Sorry to see him go. Yeah. God. Really, really one of the classiest. I mean, you got to understand, and people that are listening to this probably don't remember Hank Aaron because you'd have to be my age or, or older. This guy was Muhammad Ali. He was Michael Jordan. He mm. was the biggest thing going in sports. He, he transcended sports. Hammering Hank Aaron and did it with such class, as I say, class and grace and humility yeah. and, and modesty. I mean, just, just, the, just the nicest guy ever. I hope he got to a point in his life where he enjoyed being Hank Aaron. I hope he got to enjoy it. I hope so, too. I mean, what a cool guy to be. And I hope he got to go out there and, yep. and enjoy the adoration and all that. It's, uh... And then there was the first voice from the first piece of audio that I played for you. Larry Zeger. Yes, Larry Zeger. That's right. Larry Zeger, <laughs> who was born in 1933, who I also had a lot of admiration for in a different way. I always wanted to be Larry. Uh, that, I mean, if you said to me, what was the dream job? People have asked me that. A few times here and there over the years here in Seattle. But it's probably changed since you're 22 or whatever, right? I mean, or 10. Mm, to, no, really? Okay. Mm, well, from 10, yeah. yeah but yeah. when I got here, I got here at age 27 or whatever I was. For the last probably 30 years, it was always the same. I had two dream jobs. The two dream jobs that I would have done anything for is the job that Jim Nance has. Oh, yeah. Calling the Masters. He, calling the, calling <laughs> the, the best football game, <laughs> yeah. then the best college basketball game, then the Masters. Yeah. You know, I love... Good gig. If you want to be a play-by-play guy, which I did at one time in my life, it would be Jim. But really, even more than that, the dream job was Larry King Live. The show on CNN yeah. at 9 o'clock Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, that he did for all of those years, interviewing everybody from celebrities to newsmakers to politicians... That's the job. World that, leaders. I mean, oh everyone. Oh my God, yeah. that was the job. And mm. I had a and I had a chance, as I think I've told you before. I had a chance to know him a little bit. Yeah, Larry King. Because when I got my first job out of Syracuse, nineteen, what would it have been? Nineteen eighty nine, summer of nineteen eighty nine. Okay. I got a job at Mutual Broadcasting. Okay. Okay. And I was the overnight sports producer, so I had to get there like. Eight, nine o'clock at night, and I worked till whatever, five o'clock in the morning. Worst. At Mutual Broadcasting in, in Washington, D.C. And our office, the sports office, was right next to, down the hall from, Larry King's radio show. Uh, and he would come every night, right after the CNN show. The CNN show would end, and he would get into a limo and be driven fast to the, to the radio. A and limo, really? Whatever. That's They'd a pick good him gig. Up. What? Him? Me, not me. Yeah, no, him. Yeah. Larry King, for God's sake. <laughs> wow. Okay. And he would be he would be driven or attacked, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I got He'd you. be driven from CNN in Washington uh-huh. to the radio show, and then he would pr- proceed to do the radio show from like 11 o'clock till 3 o'clock in the morning. 
He did it Holy on, on uh, and and I would be the only guy in the sports department, and there'd be two or three of them, him and his producers and whatever, yeah. late at night, and I would go over there. I may I ended up being friendly with the, the the producer of the show, and I've told you, Larry did a voice message for me on my what do you call it voicemail or no yeah no, no, no what do you call your outgoing message what was you, what, what was the machine yeah yeah what was it called a yeah it's called, answer yeah, machine yeah. your answer machine the outgoing message I'll, I'll never, he, he, I wanted him to be on my answer machine something like hi this is Larry King yes the Larry King <laughs> the one in all the books my man Mitch Levy is not in at the moment and I know what you're asking what connection does Mitch and I have <laughs> Best friends, old pals. Oh, that's cool. Leave a message after the beep. So he did a message machine for me, and he was such a character, man. He was a gambler on sports. He loved to gamble mm. on football. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know so that. So on Monday nights, he would journey in during his commercial breaks into the sports office to put the, to watch the game. I can remember huh. vividly a Redskins-Giants game where a Raul Allegre kicked a field goal <laughs> and it made him a loser. Oh, no. Yeah, he was not happy with that. Wait, um, so what, yeah. what kind of radio show did he do? Was it similar to CNN? Where he just... Before he became big on CNN, he was a radio guy. Well, I know he got to start as a disc jockey Correct. at... In you... Miami. I was going to tell you the name of the station. He was a Florida man. He was... That's right. <laughs> uh, that, no wonder you love him so much. But yeah, he got his start at... Oh, I had it. Yeah, it but matter. in Miami. In Miami. Um, I think that he may have accumulated some wagering debt. Oh, in Miami. Okay. And then he went off to New York. And then he did this radio where he really became a national name was the radio show first. It was an overnight radio show where the biggest, I, I couldn't believe some of the people coming into our office at like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. <laughs> They'd come in to talk to Larry King on yeah. his show. W-A-H-R. Okay. W-A-H-R. Yeah. And he did this show before the CNN show. He did this mutual broadcasting overnight show on okay. 300 stations where he'd interview people and he got a name for himself. And then Ted Turner hired him. Mm. And for a long time there, and this is when I came into the scene, for a long time there, he would do both the CNN show and the radio show. He was so tired. I watched him literally a couple of stories, a couple of stories. <laughs> okay. I went into, you know, it was overnight. It's like one o'clock in the morning yeah, sure. and I'm not doing much in the sports office. So I'd go into the studio where the producer would sit, you know, across the glass yeah. and I'd watch him do a show. I saw him on more than one occasion while he was interviewing the guests with his hand. You can picture his, his chin on his hand yeah. sleeping, eyes closed <laughs> on the air, on the air. <laughs> Dozing off on the air while the inner, like while Lonnie Anderson right. is like <laughs> looking at him across the way, yeah. his eyes are closed. And then he would take these breaks. Story number two, he would take these breaks where he would go. They had, he had a huge studio and he had a couch in the studio. The guest would be sitting there for a five or six minute break yeah, where they yeah. did news at the top of the hour. He'd go lie down on the couch and he'd go to sleep. Just go grab five minutes. Yeah. And then the producer <laughs> would say, Larry, Larry. And he'd wake up. Oh, my God. You know. <laughs> He's working himself to death, though. like like a prime minister was sitting there, right? And he's sleeping on the couch. Warren Mark Gaddafi yeah. sitting there. Yeah. <laughs> Menachem Begin is sitting there, right. and he's and he's on the couch sleeping. And he would sleep for five or six minutes. And then the other thing, and this is a true story, also, he lived very close to the, the studios were in a place called Crystal City, Virginia, like Arlington, Virginia. He lived very close by. Okay. Instead of going to the end of his show, which was I think two o'clock in the morning. Uh huh. He would. He had this like Louis Armstrong Duke's place. Like he had this Louis Armstrong song that was like six minutes, <laughs> and he would he would say that's it for uh, that's it. Thanks for joining us on the Larry King show. And he'd play the instead of going to the top of the hour, which he'd play with six minutes to go. He'd play this Duke song. This 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 song. <laughs> so this he Louis Armstrong. Out of Dodge. <laughs> he'd be in bed before. 
The show went off That's the air. Brilliant. That is brilliant. Good for him. He'd walk downstairs. The car would be raiding. Bam. Yeah. He would be in bed before the. I'm telling you. That's he was awesome. A, he was a character. He was a character. Yeah. I, and I also told you the one story. I've told it before that when we saw him in Spago, my family vacation, and my mom right, and dad yeah. just wanted him to recognize me. Yeah, yeah. And it was going to be, it was like, it was so stressful. I was sweating. <laughs> is he going to recognize me or not? Yeah, is yeah. he going to remember me as the kid? You know, the whole thing. Yeah. 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 But what was the end of the story? He, he, yeah, he, he did he remember did, you. Yeah, yeah. He said hello. Yeah. Yeah. I, so he did. I'm surprised. Well, I guess you're saying he may have had a little, accumulated a little debt, but he was a big sports fan and a huge gambler at one point in his life. I don't know whether he was okay. later in his life, but, but doing yeah. two jobs like that. I mean, you know, you've, you did four hour shows every yeah. day. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that, that's enough. He didn't do it. Once he became huge on CNN. Yeah. He, I mean, huge, huge, huge. He let, he let the radio. Th- okay. He went to let the he radio didn't do it go. for that. He didn't do it for no, a long no, time. No, he did a long time. Oh, he did. Yeah. That's amazing. That's just really crazy. If people who haven't done that kind of, I know it's not digging ditches or saving lives no. or anything important, but no. you do get worn out four hours a day of talking and then to go do another show. That's incredible. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know CNN was a fledgling network either. I read that today and he sort of turned CNN around yeah. a little Ted bit. Ted Turner hired him. Yeah. When, yeah. Ted Turner, when Ted Turner hired him, that changed everything. Yeah. yeah he, he, Larry married, King. So married so, eight times. Too. So Larry King, Larry King and Hank Aaron. Two people that mean, I mean, I, I would have killed to do that job. Yeah. The Larry King live show, how cool that would have been yeah. to, to interview the top newsmakers every night for an hour. Oh, that was it. That was the, and he, yeah, he, he got a lot of flack that he was, he'd throw softballs. He never asked hard questions. And that's why celebrities liked him because he didn't give them the, the business, but whatever. I mean, did yeah, you, was Larry did you think that? I mean, you've heard him. Did you think he was... I think I would have been different if I had ever gotten a chance to do something of that magnitude, but yeah. it was fine. He was fine. But that's probably he was fine. how he kept getting the big names, too. So it's like, what are you going to yeah. do? Well, some people said, and it's actually a tack that I took on KJR and for all the years that I did interviews, they used to say about him, which was exactly my strategy, they used to say he made people with the softball questions get comfortable, mm. feel comfortable, okay. at ease, and then he would hit them with a hard one. I see. That was always my thing with, if you go back to my interviews on the air, KJR and here on Unfiltered, it was always my goal to start the interview to get the person either laughing or smiling or feeling comfortable, feeling at ease with me, and then I would kind of, it was always a little bit of a, a roadmap to a hard question, but I don't know. I, he was Larry King. Right, yeah. Cleveland, I, hello. I, I watched a, a video of him. He was being interviewed by somebody, yeah. and yeah. he just said, the key tells everyone, you got to listen. I never wrote anything down. You got to listen. That's the best well, they, way to interview. He also said, and the reason I said when he, in that audio where he said, it's a terrifically written book. He also, I think, said to me and other people that he would never read a book. <laughs> really? That, of an author that he would have on yeah. because I, I wouldn't be curious. It, it was, oh, I, I wanted okay. to be curious, so I didn't want to read the book. Nah. <laughs> the guy does it, all he does is work. He doesn't have time to read, you know? Uh, well, rest in peace to both them. Rest in peace Big to both Big parts of, of our lives. I wanted to get to Mike Krzyzewski. I have something very emotional to say about Coach K, okay. who made news over the weekend. I'll wait for the other stuff segment, okay? Hey, look who's back with us on Mitch Unfiltered. It's Jordan Flowers at the Kirkland office of Guild Mortgage. Happy New Year, Jordan. Thanks for being back with us. Give us a quick market overview of your world in the mortgage business these days. Happy New Year, Mitch. Thank you. The market is incredibly hot. 2021, interest rates are still low, and people are taking advantage of interest rates in the twos still. 
They're also getting pre-approved with us to win offers on buying a house with how hot the purchase market is as well. So if you're considering selling a house these days, this is a, a great time to do it. It's a fantastic time to be looking at selling your house. If you were considering selling, this is the optimal time to be doing it. You can reach out to our team if you don't have a trusted real estate professional. We work with a lot of top 1% brokers in the area. If you have a trusted real estate professional, I'd advise you reaching out to them if you are thinking about selling your house because the inventory is so low. We're seeing multiple offers, upwards of 20 to 30 bids per home and prices escalating the 100, 200,000 over list right now in a lot of areas. For those of us that are thinking about refinancing and calling you and getting the numbers, how does how does inflation play a part of all this? Yeah, we saw a scare here the last week with rates starting to tick up with some concern about inflation, which is bad for long-term debt, so your bond market. We've had a kind of stabilizing and rebound a little bit. Rates are still in the high twos, but if you were thinking about giving us a call and just seeing if any numbers work, now would be the time to do it. Five or eight minutes on a phone call with either Jordan or a member of his team will uh, let you know what the numbers are and whether it makes sense for you and your family and the best phone number to reach you guys. Office line still 425-250-3145 and the cell phone's 425-890-2957. We love Jordan Flowers. We love the Kirkland Office of Guild Mortgage. Unfiltered. What's the message? You'll never be prisoners of war. You'll never have to face that kind of drama. But you will have challenges in your life. That's part of life. The stress, the adversity, and I'm convinced that adversity is a horrible thing to waste. That there's value in every experience in life. To say our first guest of this episode 127 has lived an amazing life, I think would be doing him a disservice. Graduated from the Naval Academy, piloted 74 successful combat missions over North Vietnam. Then just five days before the end of his tour on mission number 75, his already remarkable life took a turn that would have been the undoing of just about everyone else. Here's author, motivational speaker, true life hero, Silver Star, the Bronze Star, Two Purple Hearts, Legion of Merit, the POW Medal, Captain Charlie Plum on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. Did I miss anything? Uh, no, just like my mother wrote that. You, you did a great job. <laughs> Your mother from Indiana, the farm in Indiana. Is that right, Charlie? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, what a great privilege it is for us to hear your story. A farm kid in the 1950s from Indiana. You always wanted to fly even as a young boy, Charlie. I did. I was fascinated, but I never thought I'd ever have the opportunity of even riding in an airplane. And of course, when I first went to the Naval Academy, I'd never seen the ocean. I'd never ridden in an airplane, certainly never been aboard a ship. Uh, so I was kind of a hayseed from the Midwest. When did it become flying an airplane to protecting our country and being a part of our armed, our armed services, our armed forces? Well, I was a pretty, uh, pretty patriotic kid, you know, Boy Scout and uh, marched in the band and all that stuff. So I, I was and of course, my father was from the greater generation. And so um, I, you know, I was a flag waver from the beginning. Mm -hmm. The pilot, the pilot start, uh, part of pilot interest didn't really start until I got into the Naval Academy and they started telling me what the options might be. 
You went to the Naval Academy, and you and I have uh, texted back and forth. You know that we're a sports podcast primarily. You went to the Naval Academy with a guy by the name of Roger, the Dodger Staubach, didn't you? I did, in fact. What, what a great guy. In fact, I'm standing here looking at a picture that I took of Roger, um, and, he, and he had this my photograph put into a, a, a work of art by an artist. It's, a, it's an oil painting uh-huh. of uh, number 12. Wow. Uh, getting, getting set, ready to, to throw a pass. Uh, so, yeah, I, I followed him. Uh, he was a, a year behind me at the Naval Academy. I was 64. He was 65. And then the F-4 Phantom Jet and the Aardvarks. Tell us the story, Charlie. Well, I joined the squadron uh, in uh, Miramar, California, helped, helped start the Top Gun School out there. Mm-hmm. The F-4 Phantom was the hottest airplane in the world at the time. We had the, the speed records, the time-to-climb records. I mean, I, I was really at the top of my—I was 23 years old when I went through uh, training of that F-4 Phantom. And then they asked me to do the impossible, land the thing on an aircraft carrier. <laughs> <laughs> the, the F-4, you know, was uh, was originally built for the Navy, and then the Air Force liked it so much that it, they ended up buying about twice as many Air F-4s. But 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 I was always intrigued by the F the Air Force F-4 that had a tail hook on the back. Mm-hmm. You know that the Air Force guys had these runways that are twelve thousand feet long. Mine was three hundred feet long. What were the first seventy-four missions like? I've heard you describe it in many interviews. You were young. You were aggressive, you were confident, you were bulletproof. No close calls in those first 74? Oh, I had a couple of, uh, of MiG fights. I had, you know, had a little bit of, uh, of combat experience with them. I'd been hit before by flak artillery mm-hmm. from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd been shot at with missiles uh, several times. So there were some, some close calls. I, I, brought, I brought that airplane back uh, with a bunch of holes in it a number of times. And but, you know, five days from the end of my tour and I would escaped all of those tragedies and we'd lost about a fourth of our squadron pilots and uh, killed or captured. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had escaped all that. In fact, I never remember. I remember the night before I was shot down and we had a little uh, conference in the ready room, you know, a bunch of telling lies and, and, and laughing and scratching. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the guys was kind of a technocrat. He, he would show up with his handheld computer. Uh, he had prefigured the probability that any one of us would be shot down and captured the next day. Wow. Real popular guy. <laughs> so, 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 he, so, he, so he shows up that night. And, um, and what, he, what were the numbers? What were the Well, <laughs> I, no, no. He, he had me pretty well, you know. You know, he'd say, hey, Fred, you know, you got a .096. Charlie, you're looking pretty good. An 03. <laughs> And so we laughed Uh and laughed about this. It was a joke, you know, that any of us would be shot down and captured the next day. Well, I don't know why. The conversation took a a real serious turn, and we began asking each other, hey, what if you get shot down and captured tomorrow? What if you get shot? To a man, as I recall, there were seven macho, young, virile, bulletproof fighter pilots admitted to the other six. Hey, guys, I've heard about the treatment, the disease, the torture. If I'm shot down and captured tomorrow, just send my stuff home because it's a mountain too high to climb. Mm. Every one of us the night before I was captured thought that it was, you know, it was just going to be so terrible that uh, we'd never make it. Mm. And then May 19th. So that would have been May 18th. That was the 18th of May. And this is the May 19th, 1967. By the way, I was 
six weeks old on May 19th, 1967. <laughs> is, it, is it a horrific memory or have you been able to somehow flip it around? Tell us how vivid that day is and what you can recall about the day that your life changed. The memory is vivid, uh, but it's certainly not terrible. You know, I mean, I, I'm a very positive guy. And I look at every experience in life and try to find the silver lining. And there were certainly, you know, certainly advantages to what I went through. But that day, they had, were planning an alpha strike. This is the, the biggest thing we could do. Mm-hmm. An alpha strike was sanctioned by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Three aircraft carriers and five Air Force bases. And we were all descending on the same targets in, um, in North Vietnam. So it was a big time deal. And so I had to get up and, you know, get dressed, get my flight suit on, brief for this thing. And the target, our particular target was just south of Hanoi, the capital city, which at the time was the most heavily defended city in the world. And we knew that. And uh, we'd been close before, but we've never, we'd never been allowed to get inside this buffer zone of about a 30 mile ring around Hanoi. Uh, So this is going to be a big deal. My particular job, see, the F-4 Phantom had a dual role. We could carry uh, missiles. The thing was designed as a high-altitude supersonic interceptor. We were to intercept other airplanes. But the, the wizards, you know, <laughs> McDonnell Douglas, found out they could hang a bunch of bombs and rockets and, on the bottom of that airplane, and we could, we'd make a bomber out of us, too. So we, were, we had a dual role of, mm-hmm. of fighter and bomber. And this particular day, I was in a fighter role, so I only had missiles to shoot down other enemy airplanes. My job was to protect the bomb group. And I was out on the edge of, um, of the formation. My backseat, my radar intercept officer picked up uh, an enemy airplane, and at least we thought it was an enemy airplane. Uh, and I eased out of the formation to try to go after this presumed MiG that was coming in, you know, coming right into our formation. This is the big formation. We had... Let's see, we had probably 30 or 40 airplanes, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, as far as you could see, uh, airplanes. And I'm on the, the left side of this formation. I ease out to the edge to go after this MiG. Well, the rules of engagement at the time was you had to visually identify another airplane before you were cleared to shoot. And so I had to get close enough to this enemy to see it before I could shoot which was a bit of a problem with this airplane because your missiles weren't any good within uh, three or four miles. Didn't give the missile a chance to to home in on the target. You were so close. So I moved out to the edge. When I saw the airplane that I'd been tracking, I saw that it was our own airplane. It was an A6 intruder that was actually jamming the missile sites that were tracked on us from the ground. I was now outside his ability to jam the missiles that were coming up against the formation. So anyway, so I took a hit uh, from the rear. I felt the explosion, just barely felt it. All of my instruments started turning red and uh, I lost the engines, lost all the hydraulic pressure, all my controls, and so everything went dead. So you eject? I ejected, my co-pilot ejected, and. Our parachutes opened, and we made a a 90-second transition from king of the skies to scum of the earth. And they were 
shooting at you in the meantime, I understand it, which obviously wasn't necessary. They could have just waited for you to land. <laughs> yeah, they could have. Hey, I thought that was kind of unfair, you know. <laughs> they just they just knocked down my multi-gazillion-dollar airplane. Now they're shooting at the pilot. <laughs> and so down you go into the rice fields, and, yep. and, and uh, they, they are awaiting your arrival. They are patiently awaiting your arrival. You were surrounded <laughs> by how many? Uh, there must have been 40 or 50, and these were all peasants. You know, these uh, these were just farmers out there with their hoes and size and, and rifles. Uh-huh. And um, I had a 38 revolver at the time, but uh, it, I was just no match for, mm-hmm. for them. And I decided there's just no way I could do it. Uh, on the way down, I had taken out my two-way radio uh, and called... Uh, it called my squadron and said, hey, don't worry about me. You'll see you at the end of the war. And uh, I told him not to try a rescue. I tore the antenna off my radio and, that was it. and tossed the antenna one way and, uh, and the radio the other. What did you think was in store for you at that moment? Do you remember even thinking about what's to come? Yeah. Well, first of all, as I'm floating down in that parachute, I'm looking for a way to escape. You know, I'm looking at hedgerows, I'm looking at uh, water, I'm trying to memorize everything that I'm looking at uh, because I'm, you know, I'm in the escape mode now. I also feel like I was probably in shock. You can't prepare yourself for a situation like that. It's just, you know, it's so, I don't know, so violent and so out of anything you've ever done. It was tough to even imagine myself in that situation. Two straight days of torture. After reaching Hanoi, share some of the uh, atrocities. It wasn't supposed to be that way because they had signed the Geneva Treaty. Well, I don't know where, I forget the name of the treaty that prohibited them from mistreatment of uh, prisoners of war, but they, they obviously went against that. How about those two days? Yeah, it, well, they had signed the Geneva Convention and they were signatories, but, uh, you know, just, <laughs> just like most things in politics and in international politics is that they define things differently. And they decided that we were not prisoners. I was never called a prisoner of war in Vietnam uh, by the enemy. They called me a war criminal because there had been no war declared. And so I had crossed the borders into their country. And so I was a war criminal. And they they told us all that we'd be tried at the end of of the war and and many of us would be executed. That's how they got around the the torture bit. I was tortured for two days, mostly... um, Military information, but even more than that, political propaganda. It was really, really interesting that their whole focus was to get propaganda from us. They wanted us to write letters to the president and and the Congress and the senators and and, uh, tell them how wonderful communism was and how terrible capitalism was. Wow. And that's why they tortured you? Yep. Really? Yep. Yep. Guys were tortured to make tapes about the good treatment yeah it was was a it was a crazy time and kind of you know tough to adjust to something like that to figure what what's going on here what's the rope trick charlie uh the rope trick was the main type of torture that they used for us where they bind your ankles together and your wrists behind your back and then they run a a rope from your wrists up over your back down to your ankles then they they put a stick a bamboo in there and they they twist and tighten up this rope the end result is your ankles your feet are right up in your face oh. and your wrists are actually on top of your head in fact i remember looking up 
uh, and seeing my wrist backwards, top of my head. Of course, by this time, my shoulders are out of joint, so I'm just wrapped up like a human pretzel. At this point, do you ever think you'll see your family again? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, as they say, I'm always positive about these things, and it hurt a lot, but I... You thought you'd live to see it, huh? Yeah, I, I, there was never... In the 2,103 days that I was there, I never, ever thought that I was going to die in Vietnam. 2,100. You just went through that number too fast. <laughs> 2,000. You 103. 2,103 days, six years, essentially. An 8x8 eight eight cell? It wasn't always in the 8x8. Eight eight. That was the first cell, the average cell. Some cells were bigger. Some cells were smaller. And uh, I was not always in solitary confinement. They, uh, they gave me a roommate. In fact, at one point, I had three roommates in an eight-foot-by-eight-foot cell. Wow, oh my God. That gets pretty close. Oh, my God. Name, rank, serial number, and date of birth. Explain to our audience what that means. That's uh, it's called the code of conduct, and that's what we were allowed to give to the enemy. And nothing more The name rank. No matter the torture, no matter the treatment, you were only allowed to give to the enemy name, rank, serial number, date of birth. And yet it's impossible. And you had to give more and you felt a lot of guilt about that. I did, as a matter of fact. Uh, And um, the torture was just too painful. And while I went in there thinking I was bulletproof and that I could take the torture, uh, I just I fell short. And, uh, and and I really did. I I, I mean, I, pay, I paced that silly cell three steps one way and three steps the other and thinking to myself, how can I ever go back to my family and admit that I had failed so miserably in my mission? Mm. And how can I ever face my fellow fighter pilots? Yeah, it was I was uh, in a state of depression. Uh, I, you know, I just I felt very guilty about mm-hmm. what I had done. Of course, you didn't know what the other fighter pilots were doing at the same time. Exactly right. And, I, you know, I felt that the other, you know, everybody else probably was stronger than I was and probably older and more mature and had stuck with the name ranks shown every date of birth. Your paths crossed with John McCain at that point for the second it, time, correct? John was my flight instructor in Meridian, Mississippi. He taught me to fly jets. I also went to the Naval Academy with his brother, Joe. Joe, Joe McCain uh, was in my, my class at the Naval Academy. And I'd served under his father, uh, Admiral J.S. McCain. So, I, you know, I knew the McCain family and I knew John. Five months after I was shot down, he was shot down. And in fact, I was the first guy to, to recognize that he was in that camp. I was peeking through a crack in my cell door. I could see the personnel gate in, the, in, the, in that prison camp. And I could, a, a guy came through the gate on a stretcher, uh, just bloody rags on top of the stretcher. I couldn't see his face. In fact, about all I could see was an arm hanging over the edge of the stretcher, and it was green and gray. I thought mm-hmm. the guy might be dead. They tossed him in cell number three. I was in cell one, and I got a hold of the guys next door in cell two and said, better get hold of this guy because he's hurting and you might not make it. And they tried. The only reason we knew he was even alive was that bloody rags kept coming out of the cell, you know, about every day. And then into the camp comes a pair of clippers, the old hand hand shears. Mm-hmm. And that was always a bad news. That meant that a prisoner was going to be cleaned up to see a delegation. That was another thing they did. They would torture a guy to see some of the anti-war uh, element, you know, the Jane Fondas and the Ramsey Clarks and those anti-war folks. Mm-hmm. They would clean a guy up. And the first indication was always the, those clippers. They took the clippers into cell number three, the new guy that we still didn't know who he was. 
The next day, I'm peeking through my crack in the door. I can see outside of cell three, the biggest pile of white hair. Well, you know, we were all in our 20s, 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 early 30s. And, <laughs> and nobody had was prematurely gray. And, and I'm looking at that hair. I'm thinking it's only one guy in the Navy I know. It's got hair like that. I'm afraid my old flight instructor has been shot down. John McCain. The next day, I'm going towards the sewer house where we dumped our buckets. I let the guard get ahead of me. And as I passed cell three, I whistled anchors away. And uh, <laughs> when I came back past cell three, very, very faintly, I could hear from inside that cell, John McCain whistling anchors away back to me. Charlie, talk to us about how things took a turn for the better and how what seemed very hopeless, even for a, a positive thinker like yourself. I, I have read and listened to you on occasion. You talk about something called prison thinking. And then you also, I mean, the communication skills between you and your brethren somehow, some way learning to communicate. That was a real, those two things were real game changers for you. Well, they really are. And what if this prison thinking was a term that the guy in the cell that, that passed a, a little wire, like a coat hanger, across the storeroom and into the hole in my cell wall. He, he taught me about prison thinking. And, and the whole point was that my restriction was not the eight feet between the walls in that prison cell. My restriction was the eight inches between my ears. This was a mental game. I had to learn to play this game. So uh, we, we found that communication was just vital and we used every possible opportunity to communicate because it, it was against camp regulations. Guys were tortured if they were found communicating with any other prisoner. But we got really creative. I mean, it was it, it just phenomenal the ways that we learned to communicate. We could wow. tap on walls, tug on wires. What, one of the more <laughs> sophisticated one was, was uh, a code we devised when we found that, that the enemy but most of them had uh, tuberculosis, and they'd always uh, coughing and spitting. And we could go around coughing and spitting, and uh, we couldn't whisper a word, but we could cough and spit, and they didn't care. So we uh -huh. we made a code out of these silly guttural noises, <laughs> it, various combinations of coughs, sneezes, spits, or wheezes <laughs> would be represented, you know, to meet various uh, letters of the alphabet or abbreviations. Wow. And wake up in the morning, hear the, the guys in the cell next door go. <laughs> And that means, good morning, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me ask what, what's got to be a silly question, but I'll ask it anyway because it comes to mind. Did you ever smile in those oh, six yeah. years? Were you, able oh. to, were you able to laugh? Were you able to smile? Were you able to keep your wits about you? Absolutely. No, as a matter of fact, early on, we figured that, you know, we could cry about this situation uh, and bitch and moan about it, or we could laugh about it. And so... We found all kinds of ways to laugh. We, um, you know, in our communications, one of the big things we did was tell jokes to each other, tell, make up stories mm -hmm. uh, for each other, make up limericks. And so, it, no, we, uh, I remember, believe it or not, and that, I remember in that prison camp laughing so hard and my stomach hurt. No, we, we, you know, first of all, you know, we're just a bunch of fighter pilots. Everybody... Well, nearly everybody in the prison camp was a fighter pilot. You know, we all had funny stories and jokes to tell, and and, uh, uh, and 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 we played jokes on each other, and we played jokes on the guards. 
And uh, so, yeah, no, no, we we smiled a lot. Charlie, what do you remember about February twelfth, nineteen seventy three? Twelfth of February, nineteen seventy three was a release date, uh, the first release of the prisoners. I was in the second release, but Feb twelfth was when we found out for sure they were going home. We'd Can been, you imagine? What did that feel like? Well, first of all, we were sort of in disbelief. We'd been tricked several times. You know, They would uh, feed us a little bit better, and then they'd call us in, hey, you're going home, you're going home. And all you have to do is sign this confession. You know, Well, we were really reluctant to, to even believe that it was coming true. They brought in a piece of wrapping paper and put it on the, on the floor of their prison cell and told us to step on it, and they traced around our foot. We didn't know why. They were going to make some leather shoes for us. You know, we, we hadn't had a pair of shoes, uh-huh. you know, for six years, and suddenly they're going to make some shoes. That was sort of the first indicator. Then, the 12th of February, they brought in some trousers with a real zipper <laughs> I ran that zipper up and down. I couldn't believe it. I hadn't seen a zipper in six years. <laughs> oh, the little things. Oh. Yeah, yeah the, yeah, the little things in life. By this time, with our communication, uh, I mean, it was so strong, and our leadership was so strong that we had our own set of rules in the prison, and one of them was the order in which we were to go home, that we were going to, to make sure that the sick and injured guys got out of there, the guys that need an American American medical medical care, mm-hmm. and then uh, the enlisted. There were a few, very few enlisted guys, and then the officers by date of shoot down. The guys that are in there the longest got to go home first, and that made a lot of sense. Well, the twelfth of February came, and they decided they were going to decide who was going to be released first. They were going to release the healthiest guys, who were the guys who were shot down just in the last few weeks or months, we're still fat <laughs> and healthy. They're going to send those guys, and then they're going to send the rest of them. And so the planes were there to take us home. Treaties had been signed, and we were to go. And we said, no, we're not leaving this camp until you send the sick and injured guys home. And then the enlisted guys, and then the officers by shoot-down date. What percentage made it out of the prisoners of war? Uh, there were there were about 1,600 uh, guys shot down and known to be alive on the ground. There were 591 of us came home. Mm-hmm. That statistic is somewhat skewed because most of the guys who died after they were alive on the ground died on the trip into Hanoi. The war was uh, all over North Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia, and there was a lot of jungle and a lot of mountains. And sometimes these guys would be shot down. And it would take months, it would take two or three months to drag them into the, the formal prison camp in Hanoi. A lot of us were injured while they were, you know, bringing us in. And in fact, that was one of the fortunate, fortunate things of, of, of my shoot down was I was, I was shot down in the, the skirts of Hanoi, the capital city, and it was just a two-hour jeep ride for me. Mm-hmm. But some of the guys were shot down yeah. hundreds of miles away. Yeah. And so we lost a lot of the guys just on the trip into the camp. The world is painfully aware of the mental challenges, Charlie, that face our great military heroes upon their return home. I, I can't and I won't even begin to imagine what a 30-year-old man felt in 1973. I think you were about 30, 29, 30. Yep, I was 30. After being an Hanoi prisoner for six years. 
How did you adjust to the world? How did you how did you uh, accept being back? Well, first of all, there were a lot of changes between 1966 and 1973. When you go through changes like that a day at a time, you don't really recognize the change. But having been shot down like Rip Van Winkle and not knowing what was going on in the States, because, see, we we never knew, you know, who won the World Series, who, who even was the president uh, at the time. In, in fact, a lot of us said we were really interested in, in the, the astronaut program. They, they gave us some, this propaganda, you know, from uh, the, the Russian news, primarily. A lot of the guys wouldn't even read it. I found that if you don't read something for a few months, you, you, you lose the ability to read. It's, I mean, it's kind of amazing. You, you look at a word and you're not sure what that word says because you hadn't seen a word for, for months. And so I continue to read this propaganda. Well, at the headlines of one of these um, newspapers, it said, the Soviet Union finally beats the United States in the space race. Uh, it said, not since Sputnik 1 has Russia been farther ahead. We've sent vehicle to the moon, gathered samples, taken pictures, blasted off, returned to Earth. And unlike the United States, we didn't have to put a man aboard to control the vehicle. And that was the first we knew. And this is like six months after the first the moon landing that we'd uh, put a man on the moon. You came home to find your young bride had filed for divorce a year earlier, not knowing if she'd ever see you again. It was tough on the ladies. In fact, I think in, in a lot of ways it was more difficult for the, uh, the wives than it was for us. You know, we knew we were alive. We were confident we were going home. You know, we felt like we were pretty normal and we were going to be better than ever. Our wives didn't know from day to day if we were alive or dead. Mm -hmm. If we ever came home, would we want to be married to them or would they have to take, you know, be our caregiver for the rest of our lives if we were injured or, or mentally deranged? The government didn't help very much either. They had a graphologist, as a matter of fact. We, we got to write letters home. I guess I was there for three years or three or four years. And uh, treatment started to improve. And uh, we got to write letters home. They had this graphologist that interpreted my letter to my wife saying that I was deranged, you know, that I'd been in this prison cell and, and it was not normal anymore and that I would probably have to be institutionalized when I came home. And so this, this war on my ex-wife, and in fact, I have a brother 10 years younger than I. He would go over, and we look a lot alike, he would go over to mow her lawn and she would break out in hives, serious emergency room hives, just seeing him because he was, he looked like me and it was at the age when, when we met. Mm. Um, and so it was tough on the ladies, but she fell in love. And, and uh, when I came home, she had filed for divorce. I, I remember laying in that hospital bed in, uh, in Chicago um, after I'd found out because I'd planned the rest of my life around her. You know, that was one of the things I did was I, I would sort of mentally escape an hour a day just to plan my life around her. All of that didn't, you know, didn't come true. Uh, so I'm saying, okay, what am I going to do now? All these plans I had made. Yeah. So it was a, you know, it, it was a challenging time. But then back to my positive thinking, <laughs> wait a minute, I've just overcome, survived, even thrived through this nearly six years as a prisoner of war. You know, this, this little bump in the road is not going to hurt. So, uh, you know, Pick up your boots, boy. Let's get on with it. You said over and over and over again, 
Adversity is a terrible thing, dot, dot, dot? To waste. I believe in every experience in life, there's good news and bad news. And lots of times we think that the tragedies of life are all bad and things that we want to forget. And as a matter of fact, when I first came home, I thought, this is what I want to do. You know, I just want to forget that six years of pain. But I am, uh, I am of the belief that what I went through, and I think I'm living proof uh, of this, that it, it's not what's around you. It's not what happens to you. It's your response to what happens to you in deciding whether that adversity is going to be a benefit. You throw away the advantage of adversity when you blame other people for your problems and feel sorry for yourself and you go into this pity party and assume that you have no control of your destiny. And, and when you do that, you're just, you're just giving away control of your life. You wrote a book called I'm No Hero in 1973. I'm doing some quick math here. 78 years old, 77 years old, something. I am 78. That book's in its 34th printing, as a matter of fact. <laughs> how would you, okay, so you're 78 and you came back at age 30. So how would you describe in a word or two the last 48 years of your life, Charlie? It's been a wonderful experience. I have remarried. I have four wonderful kids. I have four wonderful grandchildren. In fact, right now I'm in my man cave. Okay. I, I still, I, st I still fly. I have a man cave in, in the, uh, in the loft of an, of a, of a airport hangar. Okay. Wow. Yeah. My wife built this for me. It's a two bedroom, two and a half bath, full kitchen. Wow. I overlook a valley of vineyards, look down in big windows into my airplanes. I have two airplanes. I have an antique airplane from World War II and I have an experimental airplane that I terrorized the skies of Southern California. <laughs> I'm coming over, Charlie. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, no. I'm coming over. Will you go upside down with me? No, absolutely <laughs> not. But something tells me I won't have much of a choice once I'm up there. If you, You've kind of dedicated your life to sharing and relating your experiences to everyday life, which honestly sounds preposterous to me and everyone else, but you don't think so. You don't think that uh, your six years is much different than uh, what we... I, I saw you talk a little bit in some interview about you can't imagine giving birth to a child. You know, after I, after I, I speak, I uh, have people come up to me and say, I could never have done that. And if it's a lady and I said, are you a mother? And they'll say, yeah. I said, well, I've watched my wife go through childbirth and there's something I could never do. So, um, so don't, you know, don't imagine that you could never do this. I believe that any... any in fact... See, I'm, I'm convinced that some of the challenges we face today are, are as big or bigger than the challenges I faced. You know, and this whole pandemic thing, you know, uh, in lockdown um, and, and not having toilet paper. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know I, I didn't have a, a, a square of Charmin for 2,103 days. <laughs> <And> <laughs> oh. So... Um, the little things, Charlie. The little, the little things of life. <laughs> wow. So, it's, you know, it, it really is all in how you look at it. Since we do a sports show here, let's finish with this. All right. Um, it's a question that comes up all the time and has been coming up for years and years since Colin Kaepernick was the first to do it. What does a guy who spent six years as a prisoner of war in Hanoi think when he sees an athlete 
go down on one knee during the national anthem? Well, I first of all, I'm very disappointed. You know, I, I, I wish it were different. I wish that people felt better about the nation in which we live and, you know, the men and women who fought and died uh, to give people the, the freedom uh, to play football. I, I think maybe more ideally uh, or idealistically, I was in uniform to protect Kaepernick's right to dissent, and I lived in a, a foreign country nearly six years where if he were there and he disrespected the North Vietnamese flag, he would probably be strung up from the, from the closest tree. So while I'm disappointed that that happens, I feel like uh, that's one of the things that I did in my 31 years in the Navy was to, is to protect a guy's right to do that. I've interviewed a lot of people over my 30 years, Charlie. This one really stands out. I, I can't emphasize thank you enough for all that you've done for the United States and for all of us back home. You are a true life living hero, and I can't imagine feeling more privileged talking to anyone else. Thank you very much. I, I've listened to a number of your podcasts. I really, you know, you're, you're a great guy and you're Thank you. passing the word and you helped me tell my story and I, I really uh, salute you for that. CharliePlum.com if you want to learn more, you want to get the book, you want to hear about his motivational speaking, go uh, check him out on his website. 78-year-old uh, Captain Charlie Plum. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you so much. Come back and visit us on Mitch Unfiltered. Will do. Thanks, Mitch. It's time for a little money management trivia with Evergreen Golf Call's lead financial planner, Katie Versio. And I'm going to be honest, Katie, Happy New Year. I don't like my chances on these multiple choice questions. <laughs> happy New Year, Mitch. Thank you so much for having me today. It's great to have you. Go ahead. Question number one. So first question, what's the median age for retirement for individuals in the U.S.? I'm thinking that people are living longer, people are healthier longer, so I would say mid to high 60s. I'll go 67, Katie. <laughs> so it's actually 62. People think that they will be able to work longer and longer, that you know, they need to save up and work as long as possible, but unfortunately their skills aren't as relevant or they have illnesses or family things, they have to end up retiring earlier. Wow. Do you give partial credit? Are you a teacher that gives partial credit? <laughs> I'll give you a B for that one. <laughs> All right, I'll take question number two. Go ahead. So what type of retirement account allows for tax-free withdrawals? Is it a traditional IRA, a SEP IRA, a Roth IRA, or a simple IRA? Don't know the differences between all of them. <laughs> There's uh, a lot of acronyms there. I, see, I, I hear a lot of IRAs. I had an uncle IRA. I'll go a SEP IRA. So actually, the correct answer is Roth IRA. <laughs> so all the other ones that I mentioned are pre-tax. So you get a tax deferral when you contribute. But a Roth IRA, you actually don't get a deduction when you make a contribution, but it comes out tax-free. I'm 0 for 2, although I got partial credit <laughs> on number 1. I'm going for the third. Go ahead. Question number 3. So what type of medical expense account offers the largest tax benefit? Is it a health savings account, a flex savings account, or a money market account? I noticed you only gave me three this time. You're trying to help <laughs> me out here. It's a one out of three. Although I've got a health savings account. I like it. I'm going to go with the HSA, the traditional HSA. Yes, that is correct. Ah! 
that was a, a little bit of an easier one with only three. A money market does not have any tax benefits. A flex savings account, you get a tax deduction when you contribute to it, but you have to use it within a year. So it's kind of a use it or lose it. But a health savings account, you get the tax deduction when you contribute and you can invest those funds like a retirement account and then you can take money out down the line. So it gets a lot of good tax deferred growth. Some good information from Katie Versio. She's a lead financial planner at our buddies at Evergreen Golf Call, a premier wealth manager in the Northwest. Unfiltered. The Unfiltered podcast that's jason hamilton i'm mm-hmm. mitch you look good I'm, I'm checking you out there behind the mic you got the board you got the computer you look tech savvy in 2018 that's what you, <laughs> that's what you look my personal reasons for wanting to join you on the podcast to start in the first place which was i wanted to see you get back on the air i'm over committed and i've made commitments to my family that i can't keep by doing all of the things that I'm currently doing. So I'm pairing back. I'm not going anywhere. You know where I where I am, um, and I look forward to uh, I look forward to being a being a guest on Mitch Unfiltered in the near future. Can you and your wife come over here and and, and help help us out in the Levy family or not? I cannot because all hell is broken loose in the <laughs> Hamilton household, and, and it's a free for all, absolute electronics free for all. Taco Time and the Taco Time Northwest app brings you our next guest, who is no stranger, or maybe he is, to Mitch Unfiltered. The idea was hatched at Panera Bread in the -the state-of-the-art Factoria Square Mall in October of 2018. (laughs) Uh, I knew I'd get you at the -the state-of-the-art Factoria Mall. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome to the Benson Bandit, as I like to call him, Jason D. Hamilton. What in the world is the Benson Bandit about? The Benson Hotel Bandit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, boy. Piece of work. Second time. What's going on, Mitch Levy? Second time back or third or first or what? I'm trying to to keep track here. I got a scorecard over here. How many times are you back on the show? Uh, To be honest, I... I don't know. I think probably at least two, I think. So this might be three. I think we, we've done a basketball segment or a catch-up once or twice, I yeah, think. Yeah. Maybe. What happened to the guy who, as he was leaving here, said to me, you know, I'll co-host every once in a while, I'll guest host every once in a while, call me during basketball mm-hmm. season. Don't, whatever happened to that guy? <laughs> that, that guy got really busy. Oh. Really busy. Well, I, so here's what I you you and I had this conversation. I told you, I told you, I told you. I said some things changing in my life that it's going to make it really difficult to for me to do this on a consistent basis. And and when I said that to you, I, I absolutely meant it. Uh, I was genuine to say, you know, I'd have I'd, I'd be happy to come on the show as a non-frequent, but not uh, a guy out from the pasture um, <laughs> and, and do that. Uh, but. You know, it just hasn't. It just hasn't really worked. It, it's been hard. It's been hard for me to get away. And I know you've pinged me a couple of times and said, you know, let's, let's do this. And it's just been hard. Well, is it a good busy or is it a bad busy? I think our listeners, when I sent out a patron thing, who do you want to hear from? Everybody said, I want to hear. We want to hear from Jason D. Hamilton. We want to know that everything's okay. Is everything okay in your world? Yeah, everything's great. Okay. I mean, every you know, I shouldn't say everything's great. Uh, 
everything is fine, right? I, I think yeah. in today's day and age, uh, great is probably the, 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 the wrong descriptor for, for life in general. But, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I've been busy. Work has been busy. Life in general has been busy uh, taking care of my family and uh, trying to do the best to take care of my mom in this environment, uh, you know, as best I can. And, and so, yeah, it's just a combination of a couple of things and just trying to stay healthy. Are you traveling to dogs games or are you guys somehow doing them from home? I don't even know the answer. I'm embarrassed to tell you. No, no, no. We're, we're not traveling actually. So we're, okay. we're, we're trying to make it as, as game like and as game live as possible to do the the road games from a from a Seattle location and then obviously the the, the home games we broadcast you know from uh, inside Alaska Airlines Arena um, you know on Mont Lake so uh-huh. yeah that's been a whole interesting <laughs> thing as well just you know trying to do games and and um, you know team struggled and but yeah it's a uh, a fake live on the road. Are they doing a Pac-12 tournament in Vegas this year? I don't even know. I, uh, are they doing conference tournaments around the country? Are they are they going to try? or Are they not going to try? Yeah, they're going to try. Mm-hmm. Wow, they're going to try. So we'll, wow. we'll see. We'll see how all that works. And you know, the conference tournament, you know, it means a lot to uh, the conferences and the individual teams. And still trying to get for the Huskies, you know, try to win four in a row because yeah. that's the only way they're going to have a chance to get in this year. But yeah, yeah, conference tournaments yeah. Will, will exist in some form or fashion. How's online learning? What do you got? You got a junior and you got a ninth yep. grade, a junior and a ninth grader or a ju- that's right. A junior and a ninth eighth. grade, eighth grader, junior and an eighth grader. How's online learning faring at the Hamil- at the Hamilton household compared to the Levies? Uh, well, I can tell you this, my, my son has no issues with it. He, he is content with, you know, how it's structured and what he has to do and, and how he goes about it. My, my daughter absolutely despises it. Oh, uh, man, her, her motivation to get onto zoom and, and do it is, is low, Mitch. It's low. Hmm. So trying to keep her engaged. I would have a, thought it would have been the – I was guessing you were going to tell me the exact opposite. I don't know why I feel like that boys would have a harder time with it than girls, but I guess maybe the, the social element with girls, being with everybody, you know, being in the classroom. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know if it's that. Uh, I, I, I just think – I'm not saying that my son loves it i just think he's taken more to it right he just yeah. you know he accepts he accepts it for what it is and and does it my my daughter doesn't accept it for what it is she she she's hates it you know doesn't want to get on but she does and you know we've got to stay on her to make sure she's she's active versus you know the world was still round she was a good student and was happy to go so just a lot of change in that in that regard. The big issue over here, I don't know over there. I don't know if it's. I bet you it's the same around. No, none of the students want to put their cameras on. That's a big thing. Correct. Totally uncool, according to Brett. If you put your camera on, you can't put your camera on because you'll embarrass yourself in front of you. No peer puts their camera on. Is that same same way over there? Yeah, yeah. And the <laughs> teachers, you know, God bless them. They're trying to do their best to. Uh, keep the kids engaged and you know depending on what what sort of the program is at at the schools or you know state level but yeah no no camera is on in my house during during <laughs> class and i i'm just trying to get people to sit upright and not lay down that's the big challenge <laughs> uh, 
Oh, I guess we couldn't have done it, so I shouldn't laugh. When I asked you to come on, uh, you bristled. You said something to me on a text like, you know, I'm watching less and less sports, which was interesting to me because we're all home and we're all craving sports. But I can understand it. Maybe it's the lack of crowds or fans or no Hawks, not a lot of Hawks, no LeBron James, no NBA, no nothing. Yes. So so I think, you know, when the NBA bubble was going on, I, I, you know, my son and I, we were watching a lot, a lot of NBA to close out last year. And I, when I say a lot, I mean, you know, when the games were on, we would certainly catch at least a half of a game, sometimes the whole thing. And then when the playoffs came in, you know, watch most of the playoffs. But I, I think that was in part because, you know, outside of golf too, but it was because <laughs> there just hadn't really been anything on and it was great to finally watch something, you know? Yeah. And then when football started, you know, certainly, you know, I would, I would catch a game, but I, I found myself because I work a lot, a lot that when I wasn't working and when you're sitting in on camera where the adults are on camera, when we're sitting there on camera on zoom or on teams or whatever, most all day staring at more screens just, <laughs> just doesn't appeal to me as much as it used to. And just sitting down watching something just doesn't appeal to me as much as it used to. So I don't know if it's a function of that just because I'm, I'm staring at a screen all day and I don't want to continue staring at a screen when I'm not working, but yeah, it just hasn't, hasn't captured me as much. I mean, I, I, I certainly would catch a quarter or a half of a Hawks game here and there, but not nearly as much as if the Hawks are on. I'm watching the whole thing, how it used to be. Did it bother you when they lost to the Rams as much as it would bother you in previous years? No, it didn't. I mean, I think I just, yeah, that's, that's probably the other thing too. My, my interest level overall yeah. just has waned. And, wow. and, you know, it's like I, I thought they had a chance to, especially when the, the defense started to come alive, that, you know, maybe the offense will do their part and they got a chance to make it to a Super Bowl. But, you know, just, okay, they lost and time to, <laughs> time to wow. move on. Well, I hope we can suck you back into the sports world when everything hopefully becomes more normal here as the months go on and and 2021. Listen, I really didn't get you on to talk Hawk, uh, Huskies, rather, but people want to yeah. hear from you. They want to hear your thoughts. It's obviously been a precipitous fall. We don't have to define that. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel for my guy, Hop? I mean, you've watched college basketball for a lot of years, and you know that a season like this, it's virtually impossible for a coach, no matter what his lineage is what no matter what his previous successes are to ha- to come back from a season like this it's really really hard can he do it can he dig himself out yeah i mean I, I don't i don't see why not the recruiting and the talent that's come that's got to come in you know it, you know it's got to be there right you've got to yeah. make some big splashes to affect to really sort of affect the program here's the crazy part and i know you know, if we would have had this conversation two weeks ago, uh, it's a little bit different than maybe my thoughts on it today where, you know, the Huskies played well against UCLA and thought they took some positives from that. And then they come back at home and they, and they beat Colorado. So you go, all right, well, if they can play consistently on both ends of the floor, can they win, you know, the next, I don't know, half of the games remaining and give you a feeling like there's hope for the next year, right? I think two weeks ago, I was like, wow, this is really tough. I, I don't know how and why and where this is going to come from. But um, 
they've sort of bought in now and they've got a, a system that they, they like. They've made some changes defensively. And and so, yeah, I mean, but to answer your question, it's a hard thing to do to have a, a year like Washington's having to think, you know, the next year or the year after that's going to get better. But he's, he's brought in big-time recruits before, and so you got to give them the the benefit of the doubt and see what can happen. It's hard for me not to go back to the day that Quad A was declared academically academically ineligible in 2019. Think about the change in the program after that. He was two-time Pac-12 coach of the year. He had this incredible recruiting class with all kinds of talent. They had beaten Baylor, right, in the first game of the season. They had this great quarterback guard that they had gotten transfer from Kentucky. Everything... Everything was set up with a lot of momentum going forward. And then the day that we found out that Quade Green was declared academically ineligible, from that moment to now, think about what's happened. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something I think about a lot. I mean, understanding that the pandemic started in, um, you know, there was no tournament last year. That was a team that was destined for a tournament. You get the marquee win. You know, we talk about where where – Where's the marquee win? You always look at that um, when you're you're going into to March and building that resume. Well, they got it against Baylor to start the season, and we all know what Baylor did from there and what they're doing this year as well. But you, you play really well in the non-conference. Quad A becomes ineligible, and then the big losing streak there in the middle to the end of the season, uh, and, and Washington just could not right the ship after Quad A went down. You start the season this year, you know, in a tough environment, getting the one win. It's um, it is truly remarkable, and and no one could have seen this coming, especially after getting to the NCAA tournament, playing Carolina tough, obviously beating Utah State in that first round. Uh, yeah, no, it's 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 shocking and sort of head scratching at the same time. I've saved the most hard hitting, important topic for last. I noticed on your uh, on your Twitter feed there was some sort of a Twizzlers Red Vines debate in the Hamilton household, <laughs> and yeah. I wanted to bring it up. And I got to tell you, I don't really eat either one, so I don't really know yeah. the difference between either one. But I happen to know that Sharon, my wife, does. So I said to her last mm-hmm. night, I was uh, as I was jotting down my notes for for this chat, I said. Where are you on Twizzlers versus Red Vines? And she looked at me with the most disgusting look. Like, how do you not know Mm -hmm. that? Twizzlers, Mm -hmm. by far, Red Vines, here was the quote, Red Vines are disgusting, tastes like absolute (laughs) garbage. Red Vines are disgusting, tastes like absolute garbage. That's Sharon Levy speaking. So uh, I've come in late to the debate. Where are you? Are you guys on opposite ends on this, or do you agree or disagree? What's going on? Well, let me just start by saying, you know, your wife is lovely. And I I like her a lot. Uh, Have had no real reason, you know, to to question her, her intelligence, anything about judgment. Yeah, yeah, top, top, top notch. Until now, Uh, there is absolutely no doubt. Yeah. about the Red Vines versus Twizzlers. It's Red Vines all day. So, yeah, me and my wife got into a a little discussion about that when she, she stunned me by by saying that she preferred Twizzlers. I've known her a long, long time. 
we've been married a long, long time. It was, it was sort of something out of left field that I didn't know about her. That that's, that's pretty rare mm -hmm. uh, after so many years together. And so, yeah, I sent it out on Twitter. I just, I just couldn't believe that she had the audacity <laughs> to, uh, to choose Twizzlers over Red Vines, and it caused a little stir. We had some fun with it. Which one does better? I don't even know. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you. Which one does better? Is there one that's kind of the consensus, more popular one, or is it a, is it a split down the middle, internationally speaking? I was surprised at how many defenders of Twizzlers that there actually were in in uh, in at least our corner of the world. So one of the one of her comments was, you know, she's from Oklahoma. She moved here right before high school. They did not, at least at the time, um, red vines were not a thing. It was all Twizzlers. So if you were going to get any sort of red licorice for her growing up, it was Twizzlers. Yeah. Whereas out here. You know, there was both, but, but I, I feel like Red Vines was the thing out here. It's what they sold at the stadiums and games, okay. uh, Red Vines, and uh, was more prominent. And I, I just I think Twizzlers is hard, junk plastic, just <laughs> disgusting. And, and uh, you know, I just couldn't, I just couldn't believe that uh, she, was, she was cheering. Yeah. Well, you tell her that Sharon Levy's firmly, not even firmly on her side, completely, 100%, unadulteratedly on your wife's side. Red vines are disgusting, taste like absolute garbage. That's all she said. She was disgusted that I would even bring it up. So there you go. Did she, did she give you a look like, like A, that's a dumb question, but B, how could you yeah. even think that red vines were better? Yeah. yeah. So we basically had, <laughs> yeah, we had the exact opposite thing happen in my house. Uh, the look that she gave me was like a a scene that happened uh, about, a I don't know, six or eight months ago that we've talked a lot about. I don't know if you've seen it on YouTube or whatever that happened when the guy broke into the bank with the Hot Pockets. Do you know that story? I, I don't. Yes. I don't know that story. So a guy broke into a bank. The police came, and it turns out he had a Hot Pocket, and he only broke into the bank to use the microwave oven because he knew, knew they had a microwave oven to heat his Hot Pocket. He had no interest in the money in the bank. He just was going in for the, for the microwave, and he got taken away, and somebody shot some video of him being put in the police car, and somebody yelled to him, hey, was it all worth it? Was it all worth it, the arrest, to go get a microwave oven? To <laughs> and Jason, you've got to see the video of him when he gets asked this question. The face as he's literally getting into the police car. The face to the guy who asked the question, like, was the most disgusting. Like, how could you even ask me about that? This is a hot pocket, man. It's a hot pocket. <laughs> well, I guess now, now I've got something to do this afternoon. Uh, to go check I'll, out the hot pocket I'll send bank you, robber. I'll send I'll send you the video of the guy who broke into the bank not for money, but to use the microwave oven to heat his hot pocket. <laughs> That's all he wanted. I will send you that video. Oh uh, goodness gracious. All right. All right. Well all right. Let's, you know, I didn't yeah. I didn't ask you this. I didn't ask yeah. you this. Yeah. I mean, are you gonna tell me how you are? You didn't you didn't give me the Mitch Levy update. You know, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm I'm going crazy like the rest of everybody. The family's hanging in there. I've got one son at UW that's uh, in his dorm yeah. taking classes online, but he has not been able to enjoy the, the college experience, which breaks my heart at all. You know, he's stuck inside in a dorm for the most part taking classes. 
I've got a ninth grader. Mm-hmm. I've got a, a, a ninth grader who just went to, you know, first year in high school, can't go to high school, can't, you know, he's playing basketball a little bit. They've got online practices. He's playing baseball a little bit. Baseball's easier for him to go up to the you know, high school and practice with his high school buddies. But, yeah, it's a – look, we're healthy. I don't want to complain too much because there's a lot of other people in the world that got so much more to complain about than I do. So yeah. we're hanging in there, Jay Hammond. I miss you. I miss you a lot. I never thought that when you and I would have our highfalutin meetings at the state-of-the-art – Factoria Shopping Center <laughs> at Panera. Could you imagine if I had turned to you sitting at that one table that we always sat at? If I had turned to you one mm-hmm. day and said, you know, in a year's time or a year and a half's time, we're not going to be allowed. We are not going to be allowed for a year or a year and a half to sit here at Panera Bread. What would you have said to me at yeah. that point? Can you imagine that? Yeah. It's just it's it's unthinkable to be honest with you. Just it's it's weird, and as the days and months go by, yeah, you know, I had this conversation with my wife, and I said, "Gosh, it's about to be spring again." It's you know, we've just been doing this, and you know, yeah, no, I I couldn't imagine, and it's uh, sometimes it feels like a bad dream. I know it's it's worse for a lot of people who've lost loved ones and and friends, but um, yeah, I just hope we can get uh, we can get out of this soon and be in the arenas and be in restaurants and and be with each other because it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's getting old. It's getting old. Hugs to you and your family. Thanks for coming back on. Don't be a stranger. Appreciate it, Mitch. Best to you guys. Hey, look who it is. Dan Black, the president of Zeke's Pizza, is on what else? The Zeke's Pizza hotline. Dan, how are you? I'm doing good, Mitch. Thanks. How's Zeke's Pizza? Zeke's is doing good. It's, you know, it's wintertime. It's dark and cold, but we're selling some pizza. We're selling some beer. We're selling some franchises, so we're feeling good. So I want to know how well the big boss knows his own menu. Okay, we'll see here. Are you ready? Here we go. I say a big pie with pepperoni, Italian sausage, Canadian bacon. That one's easy. That's the John Candy. I say pepperoni, Canadian bacon, Italian sausage, chicken, bacon, mushroom, black olive, green pepper, tomato, fresh garlic. You say. That's a lot of stuff, so it's got to be the kitchen. <laughs> it's got to be the kitchen sink. <laughs> Two of the more popular pies, or what? What is the most popular pie? These yes, days? those those two are both popular. Cherry Bomb and Puget Pounder are two most popular pies. Okay. Kenmore is open. That makes eighteen. How they doing, and what's coming on Zeke's? Kenmore's had a good couple of weeks. We've talked about the other restaurants we have being built right now, or leases being signed, which are Mill Creek. Seward Park and Mount Lake Terrace. And then since the last time we've talked, we've actually got a bunch more traction. There's nothing I can announce yet, but there's as many as three new deals that I'm getting ready to sign. So, yeah, the momentum continues on the franchising front. What a great feather in your cap to be able to expanding at the rate that you guys are during a tough time. Well, of course, it's all been me, but yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it's, Zeke's. It's been great. It's our brand has got a lot of momentum since COVID hit. People have discovered us in new ways, particularly with the beer delivery and stuff. Pizza's been busy in general because it's good takeout and delivery. And so while I'm hesitant to say COVID's been good, it has given us some momentum in ways that it, it hasn't necessarily done for everybody. Three ways to order online. Also, you can download the Zeke's Pizza app like we do here at the Levy family, or you can just call the old fashioned way, the phone number, which is... 206-285-8646. Zeke's Pizza, a great partner of Mitch Unfiltered and a terrific supporter all these years for me, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. Four on three, Hawes trailing. Look at the 
Sixers need a three. Hawes for the tie. Yes! <laughs> you know, we need a little size. We need some size on episode 127. We've got a lot of guards running around here. Jason Hamilton was on. I was a guard a million years ago. We're desperate for a big and the Spence needle. The Spence needle is posting up Spencer Hawes making his second visit to Mitch Unfiltered. How are you, Spence? I'm doing well. How are you, Mitch? You know, I'm, I'm doing better now that I hear from you. Are you going out of your mind like the rest of us the last year, year and a half? Yeah, it was. Uh, I think the first lockdown was a little easier. Now that it's it's rolling into the, into the new calendar year, I think it's tough. But, you know, all in all, I, I don't have much to complain about. So just got to adjust and, and hold on until we a uh, couple more months till we start getting shots and getting things back rolling. Did I hear rumors you were on a golf course in January in frigid temperatures? Have you gotten the bug? Have you been bitten by the golf bug, Spencer? I, I got bitten a long time ago. I, I played yesterday. I'm going to go out and play after we get done today. And, Woo! Woo! Uh, not not getting the same uh, the same carry as I'm used to, but <laughs> playing from the winter whites helps out there. You had to love the recent Seattle expansion talk by Commissioner Silver and the rest. You had to get excited about that, no? I did. I I'm having a hard time because I've gotten my hopes up, you know, over the course of the news we've had since since the team left really so many times that I'm trying to temper it a little bit. When, uh, when I was playing with Marvin Williams in Charlotte, he gave me a good piece of advice that he doesn't. Until the, until the team, the, the moving trucks come back, he's not getting excited. So I've tried to, I've tried to temper it, you know, the expectations, but it's hard not to. I mean, anytime there's, there's the swell of good news or potentially good news with regard to the Sonics, it has to put a smile on your face. And I think now the, the forces are kind of aligning for expansion that were not really there before. They always tried to try to downplay uh, with what's going on kind of in their economic world and the struggles that are affecting them. I think the stars are aligning where it makes a lot of sense for both sides to, to try and grow the league that way. And, maybe take a little bit of a smaller slice of a bigger pie. I think Spencer Hawes is going to be in the front office someday of a new Seattle expansion. Yeah, I, I don't know. More likely that than coaching, though. I know I know <laughs> that much for sure. What are you doing, by the way? Are you are you retired yet? Are you coming back? Are you still getting paid by like somebody in the NBA, like Milwaukee or somebody? What's uh, going I on? Wish. <laughs> my, my sugar daddy slush fund is, has run dry. Uh <laughs> But no, I'm I'm not retired. I'm I'm feeling good. Uh, you know, I had I had a surgery last year and kind of thought that was going to be be the end of the road, and uh, and ended up feeling so good afterwards that I'm trying to keep things going and see uh, if an opportunity presents itself, be ready to answer the call. And if not, if not, it was a good run. When you look back upon your career, what's the word you use? What's the adjective that Spencer Hawes? would use to describe Spence, what'd you do, 10, 11 years in the NBA? Yeah. Uh, I don't I mean, I think successful. I, I wouldn't say it was everything that I'd hoped for, but I think most guys, if you ask them when they get done, that would probably be the case. But I think all in all, when I look back and, and look at the big picture, I think it, it was a good run. I, I had a lot of fun, uh, made a lot of great relationships that, that I still have to this day. And I, I'm very thankful that I had the opportunity to do it as long as I did, because it's, it's unique that, uh, that anybody has that chance and, and to have the longevity, I think is what, 
what guys ultimately strive for at the end of the day. If you were a rookie tomorrow and got a chance to snap your fingers and do it all over again, would you do anything different? Is there anything tactically or your game or strategically or your mindset? What would you change if you could change anything? Uh, I think I would, if I could tell my younger self, give him some advice, uh, be a little less obstinate, uh, a little more open to coaching and, and criticism, especially in the younger years and realize that, you know, people are trying to help you. They're not out to get you and, and not, and just kind of shift the, the mindset there, I guess. I think I, I think I was a little too much of a know-it-all in my younger years. Still probably am. <laughs> okay. How was the Greek freak to play with at the end? What was he like? I hear he's the world's nicest guy. Was he the best player you ever had as a teammate? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think talent wise, I don't know anybody that's uh, really close. I mean, his, his ability at that size, his fluidity, his basketball IQ is, I think, something that's underrated about uh, what he brings to the table. His vision, you know, he's basically a seven-foot point guard out there, are really unrivaled, I think, in the history of the game. And I think as he continues to develop, if he can, if he can figure out the jump shot, I know it's not rocket science, but, you know, he goes from pretty much unguardable now to something that, that we haven't seen before. If he wasn't the best player that you ever had as a teammate, who was? I would say when I played played for the Clippers with Blake Griffin, I'd say he's the closest uh, in terms of size, athleticism, and the total skill package of anybody I played with. Was your best year the one, the last one in Philadelphia? Yeah, I think so. Between between Philadelphia and, and then after I got traded to Cleveland, I think that was when the league was finally – kind of transitioning to embracing a big that stretched the floor and, and played away from the basket and, and handled the ball a little bit more. And so I think finally get an opportunity to be put in that position, kind of unlocked my game and it was a lot more fun. I know that much. You were a career 35% three point shooter and you shot in the forties a few times. And I saw the stats. I don't know how I, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> I saw, I saw the stats from your, I don't know if it's the G League. I don't know what they call it. The D League. When you were there with the Lakers G League team and you, you shot like 50% from three, you could always shoot it from three, huh? Yeah. I mean, it's like every kid when you're growing up, you want to be a guard and every guard wants to be a big, or at least that's what they tell me. And uh, I was fortunate to uh, to be able to play for my dad a lot, a lot of the time growing up. And he probably against against his initial instincts would let me handle the ball and, and shoot the ball. And I think it just kind of stemmed from that. You know, my dad was a shooter. My uncle was a shooter back in the day when big guys weren't doing that as much. So that was something we always practiced. And, uh, you know, I think a little bit of it came naturally and the rest, uh, you just put in the work. All right. Some quick hitters here. Most exciting NBA game you ever played in. Good question. I don't know if, one really stands out. I think any any of the game sevens were always exciting. It just everything leading up to them, the the preparation, every little part of your routine just seemed like it was a little bit more important. Uh, the the pressure. I think those are those are the situations you live for. And, and you know, unfortunately, you came up on the on the losing side more often than the winning side. But those always uh, those were always a little bit more special. I think you, to everybody you, that, that's played in them. You had a game seven against Garnett Allen in Pierce, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, so that was the Eastern Conference semis, I believe, in 2011. Uh, it's kind of – it's with uh, the Uncut Gems narrative, it's kind of come back a little bit in, into the pop culture narrative. That's right. That's right. 
yeah, that was a fun one in Boston Garden. Uh, I was fortunate enough. My dad and my uncle flew back from Seattle for the game. You know, a place that my uncle played in playoff games back in the day in the, in the Eastern Conference. So it was fun, special moment having all, having them back there. It didn't go the way we wanted to, but for a team as young as we were to be there, I don't think anybody expected that in the first place. And it was really a you know hard fought series and. Uh, a lot of fun to take part in. How many times were you traded? Ooh, a lot. I think, uh, let's see, sack to Philly, uh, Philly to Cleveland, L.A. to Charlotte, and then Charlotte to Milwaukee. What's it like to get traded? It depends. When you get traded in the the first time I got traded, it was the middle of the offseason, so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. I was playing beer league softball on Mercer Island, so it wasn't well, it didn't quite have the same feel as when you get traded in the middle of the season and uh, like I did from Philly to Milwaukee and you literally threw the stuff I thought I needed on my bed, packed a bag to fly up and meet the team in Toronto the next day. And you go from a city you lived in for four years to introducing yourself before the game to guys on your team and then out there playing the next day. I don't think there's really a, a handbook for those situations, but you learn on the fly and it uh, it definitely gets easier <laughs> every time afterwards. Where'd you like living the most? Well, I lived in Manhattan Beach when I played for the Clippers, so I don't think that... <laughs> we'll, we'll count that as the outlier. We'll throw it out. Uh, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed living in Philly, uh, living downtown in the middle of the city. Yeah. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and, and you know, the, the fans get a, kind of a... You know, they get a bad rap. I think, you know, there are there are plenty that piss you off that you don't want to deal with. But overall, there's you know, they have a lot of passion and and they support their teams uh, in a unique way. But as well as anybody as any fan base, at least funniest teammate, uh, Blake Griffin. Really? I, mean, I wouldn't. He does, really? He does, stand, he does stand up comedy. I mean, you can't. Are you that's, he's in a different different echelon. Wow. Dirtiest player either played with or against. Dirtiest player, man. I they were kind of weeding that out by the time I got to the league, but there was there were still some of the old guard. But all all those cagey bets. Kenny Martin was pretty dirty. Uh, <laughs> he took me out. He took me out one time on a fast break. I'm still not over that one. But <laughs> did he have they, did he have the the red lips on his neck at that point, or had he not gotten those? Oh yet? yeah, no, he was, that was well into that era. All right. Most underrated player, the guy who was really, really good as a teammate that didn't get the pub that everybody else did. I always think Drew Holiday was that guy. And now it's uh, now that he's gotten a chance to go up to Milwaukee and really be on a contender uh, for the first time in his career. I think he's, you know, he's starting to get more attention. He's playing on TV more. It's tough when you're down there in a market like New Orleans where you're not getting that type of exposure. But I've always thought that guy is one of one of the top tier point guards in the league. And I think now he's finally starting to kind of get that recognition. Here's one that our audience will get a kick out of. I bet you a lot of people don't know that, you know, obviously, cause you did it. You played for coach Carl's son, Kobe. I, Carl. I remember when Kobe Carl was running around in diapers on, on the key arena floor, for goodness sakes, almost diapers anyway. And you play, he was your head coach at one point at the end, right? Yeah, down in uh, down with the South Bay Lakers, he was the head coach, and uh, Dane Johnson, uh, another guy that I I grew up playing with and against, was one of his assistants. So it was kind of a fun, uh, you know, Seattle Seattle connection down there in the South Bay. Oh, wow, that's cool. And Coach Carl would would show up for practices and and uh, never shied away from giving his two cents. Let's just say that. <laughs> I know, I love that. All right, let's end with this. 
I read an article last night about your bond with Kevin Durant. I don't know that I ever knew that, but it made sense to me when I read the article that you guys, I guess, came out the same year and you've been friendly since going back to some high school all-star games. Is that right? Tell everybody about the relationship you formed over the years. Yeah, well, we were uh, same high school class. We both played on the Nike circuit and really it kind of kicked off between tournaments and and the Nike All-America camp. And then we, uh, we took a trip for USA basketball and Nike over to France. I think we were like 16, uh, myself, Kevin, Ty Lawson, Rudy Gay. I mean, we had a pretty stacked little team that, that ran through the tournament, but, you know, became friendly really before that. And then just, uh, stayed in touch. And when he was getting ready for the draft, his agents at the time were the good ones. So he was out here in Seattle, you know, pretty much on his own as a 19 year old. And so he was hanging out with me and, and got to know my friends out here. And then obviously getting drafted the Sonics for the short time he was here and great kid, great man now. And, uh, it's been a lot of fun for myself and, and family included to see, you know, his comeback this year and, and how he hasn't seemingly missed a beat coming off of one of the, what's at any age, one of the most difficult injuries to, to rehab and come back from with the Achilles. Do you think that the, the life, the media, the grabbing at him took a toll on him because I just remember when he was here, his personality, very bubbly, very outgoing, very smiley. And then I don't know, as he grew into this superstar and everybody grabbed at him and then he made the choice to to Golden Golden. So it just felt like a lot of this stuff wore him down personally. I think that kind of happens to everybody to some extent. Obviously, he's in a different position than even 99% of the guys in the league with, you know, the pressure that he's under and the amount of attention that he receives because he is, people are seeing it again, the best basketball player in the world. And I think it'd be hard not to. At the end of the day, he's he's a human being like everybody else. And they don't teach you in school how to deal with, uh, with that type of exposure and pressure and everything else. And I think all in all, he's handled it as well as, as you could. And, and I think now that uh, he's in a situation in Brooklyn where he's kind of had a, a chance to reset between moving there and having the year off of the injury where I think he's in a really good place, obviously basketball-wise, but off the court as well. Did you call him the best basketball player in the world? Did I hear that? Yeah, I did. You want to tell that to LeBron? Uh, I mean, <laughs> 1A, 1B, however you want to put it, but... You know, you can't go wrong either way between those two. Great to visit with you, Spencer. It's always fun to chat. I hope you'll come back and whatever's next for you, if you want to come back and play, I hope somebody will take an old man that can shoot it from three uh, one more time. And if not, whatever's next, you'll be successful at. I know that. Thanks for being back on with us on Mitch Unfiltered. Always a pleasure. And uh, let's one time for Larry Scott getting fired. I had to get something in there about that. (laughs) What a grand new day. What about the Husky basketball deal? I guess maybe somebody out there is going to be mad at me for not asking you. Can Hopkins dig out of the hole? Man, I haven't really been able to even watch it this year. So really, we we can just leave that one at that. Okay. Spencer Hawes. Thanks, Spencer. Nice to visit with you. All right. Thanks for having me. Next up on Mitch Unfiltered, John Waterstrat, owner, Fireside Home Solutions. John, 2021 is going to be a better year for all of us. 
you and I rarely talk about your outdoor units and your fire pits, and I'm loving what I'm seeing on your website at firesidehomesolutions.com. Talk about that arm of your business. Yeah, great question. Our manufacturers that create the indoor fireplace create outdoor fireplaces. So we have everything from an outdoor fireplace that's fully made to be outside, stainless steel, and also fire pits. We can take that great gathering space that we have inside and create one outside. So again, on those cool spring and summer nights that you want to continue to spend some time with your friends, we can turn those fireplaces and keep everybody warm. What's the latest uh, on scheduling, delivery, installation timeframes on your end as we enter the new year, John? Great question, Mitch. Uh, we've been very blessed with great manufacturers. They've held steady to their uh, schedule. We're still able to install units between three to four weeks, so not too late to buy. We still have this cold January snap that we're going through in February. Just had a windstorm just the other day. So when those power outages come, you can throw that insert on and keep yourself warm in your home. And by the way, while fireplaces pay the mortgage at John Waterstrat's place, that's not the only thing you guys do at Fireside Home Solutions and do very well. Yep. Uh, we not only do fireplaces, but we do do garage doors. Garage doors has been a great business, something we've got into five to six years ago. Again, it's a very complimentary business. And when we design indoor spaces, now we can take the outdoor of your house. A garage door makes up about 30 to 40% of your home on the front view. We can change that up for you, give you a traditional look, modern look. We can install it design it and then same thing as our fireplaces we can service it for life so it's been a great business and we just were able to do my uh, golf club at linden and put all those doors in there nice what would mitch unfiltered be without great partners like fireside home solutions and john waterstrat start your search for a fireplace or garage doors at firesidehomesolutions.com unfiltered stuff segment episode 127 henry plum if you haven't listened if you skipped over at all the interviews please go back and listen to those 35 minutes i'm really proud of those 35 minutes he was some sort of a figure and then we had uh, jason hamilton and spencer haas he's inspiring i haven't heard it yet but what a what a story yeah what a story yeah now you said earlier that you wanted to tell him a joke yeah, want, that your dad used to tell you but because you, he was telling you, me you wimped out I, well i didn't want to i <laughs> no, didn't, didn't want to hurt know. the guy's feelings sure, he was sure. telling me how over six years as a prisoner of war i can't believe that being tortured and i mean come on that he developed he and his people at different cells he would be in an eight by eight cell and he would he developed like little tapping on the walls and a little wire and they they developed a code to be able to communicate with it to talk to one another because they weren't allowed to talk to one another for six years and it reminded me of a joke immediately reminded me of a joke that my dad loved may he rest in peace that i i came this close first to telling him during the interview but then i was like oh he might take it as a and then i was going to tell him off the air because there's no jeopardy there if he hates me no one will hear that right and i didn't do it there either it goes up it goes something like this Guy goes to prison. First night in prison, he's scared out of his mind. It gets dark, and there's all these cells and prison mates and whatever. And all of a sudden, he hears, his eyes are wide open. Everybody's going to sleep. He hears, 27! Some guy yelled, 27. And everybody bursts out laughing. All right. He's like, what the hell? (laughs) Then about 13 seconds, 15 seconds later, he hears from another cell, 46! (laughs) People start... Bust out laughing. 
So he whispers to the guy next to him in the cell next to him. He says, what the hell? What the hell's going on? He says, oh, don't worry. We've all been here for so many years. We've decided instead of telling jokes, we've numbered each joke. So each number represents a joke rather than telling the whole joke again. He's like, oh, that's great. So a little time goes by. Another guy yells, 24. Everybody starts laughing. So he decides he's going to get into the act. All right. (laughs) 46, he yells. Silence. Oh, boy. Somebody else yells, 14. (laughs) (laughs) He says, six. Stone cold silence. He turns to the guy again. He says, what's what's going on? The guy says, you don't know how to tell a good joke. That was my, that's a corn. That was my, my dad loved that that's joke. That's really funny though. I my like dad that. loved that joke. And, and I, can you now understand why the code with the joke and the number and him and, you know, doing the, figuring out ways to communicate. But from what you say of him, I think he would have loved I it. I think he would have liked it. Yeah, and I, I wasn't willing it. to, I'm sorry, I wasn't willing to tell the joke. That's, that fits perfectly. You, you don't know how to tell a good joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> By saying two numbers, that's really funny. Uh, I like that. Do you want to hear a quick thing that I remember today that, that my dad did to me when I was a kid? Sure. I completely forgot it. For yes. some reason, it hit me today. Yes. So it's my first year of Little League Baseball, and I have to get uh, a cup, you know, a protective cup. Yeah. I had where, never owned where, one. Where would that? Yeah. I mean, I have one on right now. Every time I come, uh, I just, for better, whatever reason. better. Misty. So, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You're right. I should, actually. So we, we go into, I think, Big Five or some sure. sporting goods store. Sure, I mean, we're, sure. I, I, we're looking. I'm like eight, eight or nine. My dad comes over and he goes, all right, so I just talked to, to the, the woman that works here and she's going to come out and take your measurements in just a second. <laughs> I'm like, measurements? <laughs> he just deadpanned it, you oh, know. Oh, that's fantastic. He goes, and, 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 a little bit later he goes, you should have seen your face. You turned white. You really thought a lady was going to come out with her little tape measure and measure tells you down me there. that his dad used that on him. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. <laughs> That's pretty damn funny, That is though. so funny. Now that I think about it. Too bad you didn't have a son. You couldn't use that joke. I know. Why exactly. didn't you tell me that joke a few years ago when I had two <laughs> baseball players? That's true. Well, actually, I have. Oh, yeah. That's good. <laughs> well, on. I have one thing for the other. We've gone long with the interviews in the first time. We've gone real long. Okay. So we'll keep the other stuff segment a little bit shorter. I only have one. I have about five things, but one that's important that I wanted to fit into the first segment that we didn't fit in. Are you aware that Mike Shashevsky is in the news over the weekend? Yes, I saw that he blew up on someone or yes. lost his temper. I like to I'd like to discuss that because this is again something that you know I like to talk about things that hit close to home, sure, yeah. hit a nerve, touch a nerve. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here here's the story. If you haven't heard by now, Coach K, the untouchable, maybe the greatest coach. I think probably the greatest coach in the history of college basketball has had a very difficult year with COVID and his team and his team's not good and yada 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 and. His team lost to Louisville over the weekend to fall to 5-5. Five and five. Weird. They're nowhere to be found in the top 25. And he was doing his press conference. They all do their press conferences now on Zoom. Nobody, no reporters go in anymore. Yeah. And here's what happened. Hi, Coach. I'm just curious as to what, what the next step forward here is for the team as you guys move into another week of basketball. Yeah, why don't we just evaluate this game? You know, I'm not into what our next step forward is right now. We just finished the hard-fought game. Yeah, I don't know if, like, when you, what, what, what's your major? Whoa. What's your major at Duke? What's your hardest class? Econ. Okay. So say you just had the toughest econ test in the world, and when you walked out, somebody asked you, what's your next step? 
Uh, you see what I mean? Does that you have some empathy and and yeah? You know, just give us time to evaluate this game, and then we'll we'll figure out just like we always try to do uh, what what the next step will be. The next step, obviously, is to prepare for Georgia Tech. You know how we prepare for them. That's what we're going to have to figure out. There you go. Did you find that to be a really unfair question? Not at all. Okay. As I said, this is this is something that struck a nerve with me because I this guy who asked the question first, I'll tell you about him. I think he's either a freshman or sophomore at Duke in their journalism school. Okay. He's assigned by the newspaper, by the campus newspaper, Duke's newspaper, a very well-respected campus newspaper, by the way, to cover Duke. That was the first question he's ever asked, Coach K. Oh, man. The first one. And he, and he tweeted, when, a lot of people tweeted this. He didn't tweet the video, to his credit. The kid did not. I think he's a freshman. I think he's graduating at 24. Um, after everybody started this firestorm of, on Twitter and everywhere else, he then commented, yeah, it wasn't exactly the way I pictured my first question ever to Coach K. Yeah. A bummer. That's a bummer. Okay. The question, which was, where do you go from here? First of all, point number one is not a bad question at all. It's a very appropriate question, in fact, for a 5-5 five and five basketball team that's used to be in 10-0, who just lost to Louisville. So the first point I'd like to make is, as you just point out, there was nothing wrong with the question. Okay. The second point I'd like to make is, is that point one makes no difference. Whether it was a good question or a bad question. Coach K knew exactly who was asking the question, as you can tell. Yep. Okay. He berated him. He talked down to him. He dismissed him. And it doesn't even matter to me what the nature of the question was. Is it too much to ask? And by the way, you are looking at a Coach K fan. I am a Coach K. I like him. I like him personally. I like him professionally. I've never gotten a chance to interview him, but I like everything about him. I know there's a lot of people that don't. I like the program that he runs. I am a Coach K fan. But is it too much to ask these guys that make millions and millions and millions, in Coach K's case, $10 million a year, coaching college kids for just a little civility and even some encouraging words and encouragement for college journalism students? Is it too much to ask? Now, somebody would say, God... NBA coaches don't have to deal with this because student newspapers don't get a chance to ask. Okay, well, this is college. Yeah. This is Duke. Okay, I was there once. I was there in 1986. I have told you the story oh, yeah. where I asked a question that, by the way, was a lot worse of a question than that guy asked. That guy asked a good question. I actually asked a question. I, I'm a little, I'm not over it yet. I actually <laughs> asked a question that I think the essence of the question was very fair and a good one. For 18 years old or 19, I was 18. I think the essence <laughs> of the question, one. I do, I do. Okay. I think the essence, I just didn't ask it right. I chose shitty, I, I, it was the worst, worst question I could ever ask. Did the you way let I, your fandom get in a little bit or no? Did your fandom sneak into the question? Like you're upset or pissed off? Yeah, they, okay. yeah a little bit probably. Okay. I, I don't know. I just didn't. I just didn't ask the question right. What I was trying to ask when I asked in 1986 on the Friday before the Georgetown game, where they had lost a few games in a row to Georgetown, yeah. and they had surrendered leads late in the game, they had kind of let the thing get away from them late. I was trying to ask him at 18 years old, how do you not let that, the recent problems in the last few minutes, seep into your heads? Right. 
You know, emotionally, how yeah. do you get away? To me, the essence to that question is very, very fair yeah. and a very good. In fact, I think it's a fabulous question. Well, I think Larry King would have asked it a lot. No, he wouldn't you. have asked. I mean, he wouldn't have asked. <laughs> but what I did was, I said, I said, how do you stop? How do you prevent your players from falling apart in the last two minutes against Georgetown again? Falling I apart. I use the words falling yeah, apart. Yeah, it's a little rough. Yeah, yeah. And it was shitty. It was yeah. terrible. But it didn't. I was 18, 19, I was 18 years old, okay? I was at what they used to call the premier journalism school in the country. He was the coach of the basketball team making millions of years, Jim, Jim Beheim, at a university that he knows he was full aware and still is that kids come there to become sportscasters and journalists and writers, right? He was dealing, he knew that that was part of the job. Kids were going to ask questions, okay? Yeah. Idiots like me were going to call falling apart, whatever, Okay. Civility, man. Yeah. The, kid, the kid's 18 freaking years old. Does Coach K really need to do that? Does he really need to belittle him like that? The part that gets me, it's, it's less about that he makes 10 million a year. His job is a mentor to college students, right? He mentors young men, young yes. college age men. Yes, he does. Okay. You could have also mentored this kid a little a bit little too. A little bit. Since it's your job. If you didn't care for the question... Maybe help him out, coach him up a little bit. You are a coach, right? That's the part that gets me. You do that for a living. Yeah. And that's the yeah. part. Like, you really just yeah. could have helped this. His first question. Now, somebody, so would say, the somebody would say, okay, he was frustrated. He caught him right after a game. Maybe if this was at a practice a day or two later, the result would have been different. But, you know, he's a human being. Is Coach K and his team had just lost again. And they're 5-5 five and five and he's feeling it. Yeah. And he was emotional. So I guess we give him a pass on some level for that, but come on, man, come on, man. Yeah. It was it was a it was not a bad question, and B to me it doesn't matter. It was just belittling and yeah. condescending and just Dismissive, not for not sure. a good look at all for Coach yeah. K. All right, I'm done with other stuff. You go. All right, Tom Brokaw. Keep it snappy. Go. Tom Brokaw, you remember him? Yes, retired. <laughs> Formerly 55 years with the network. I thought he was retired 15 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> he might have been. Who knows? Maybe he was working in the cafeteria. I don't know. I don't know. 55 years? 55 years. Holy Toledo. Yeah. Started His career started at Sioux City in Sioux City, Iowa, like, yeah. like all of ours did, right? And then no. he was in Omaha Blinded. and Atlanta. and Yeah. Just a trusted newsman, Tom Brokaw. Tom so. Brokaw. Well, a little bit of a... A little problem with his elves. A little bit, yeah. A little bit, yeah. So he he will be missed. Yeah, and then he was, yeah. Okay, go ahead. And then I have a story from 1993. Salt and Peppa have beef. What? You remember Salt and Peppa? Do I remember Salt and Peppa <laughs> with Gary Payton? Yes, right, there yes. You go, yeah. The Tacoma Dome series against the Lakers. That's right. That's right. So there was this uh, documentary that came out on the Lifetime Channel, and Spinderella was left out of it, and she is pissed. I don't, know, I don't know who that is. Come on. See, you've just lost me. All right. She was the DJ for, I don't know for Salt. Is. But I just love that Salt and Peppa are beefing with Spinderella. I don't know. At 50 years old, it just made me laugh for some reason that there's a Spinderella out there. All right. The 1963 Chevy Impala. I love the 64 Chevy Impala. It's a, one of my dream cars. Really? I okay. love it. Yes. I know you're a car guy. Well, well a little bit. I a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Kobe Bryant has a, he had a 63 Chevy Impala. It's, it's going to. Sell expect for. to be $250,000. Here's the part that kind of made me laugh, though. His wife, Vanessa, she went to uh, West Coast Customs. They, they are the best in the biz. And they gave, she gave this to car to what, him. What do they do? 
Oh, they, Coach Customs. You remember the, the show, what biz? You remember the show Pimp My Ride? Pimp My Ride no, with Exhibit? No. Spinderella right. on that? Yeah, sounds like it. So they, they take any car you want and they'll make it look awesome. They'll, they're, they'll oh. new interior. Oh, really? I mean, it got so crazy that someone wanted a fish tank, you know, crazy stuff oh. like that. This wasn't that, but it was per, it's purple. It's, it's really cool. She gave it to Kobe as a gift in 2006. And then he went ahead and sold it in 2013. <laughs> I, I was like, really? Sounds like when I got a car for Tyler Orsborn. You, what? <laughs> what? You don't know that story. No. People, people in our audience know that Tyler story. Tyler who? I once bought a car for a producer. Oh, maybe and I he heard sold that. sold it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But this, this thing's going to get 250 grand. And Kobe uh, sold it. It's, it's Laker purple. It's awesome. Like, all right, anyway. All right, you see this? The goalkeeper for a professional soccer team broke Guinness World Record. Did no, you see this? No, I'm it's, not a soccer guy. I'm so. not either, but you yeah. can appreciate a 105-yard kick. Yeah. He's the goalie. He kicked it 105, right off the ground or a uh, punt? Off the ground. No. And it took a big bounce. and the, the Oh, goal- it, not in the air, not 105 yards in the air. No, I think they're counting it, if it you know, to, the, to the goal. Okay. okay. But nonetheless, he okay. boots the shit out of it. The poor goalie, <laughs> he's like, right, but it takes one of those enormous bounces. And he's like, the, the Did goalie, it go in? It went in. He scored a goal. The longest, <laughs> the longest goal, it's a Guinness uh, World Record. You got to see this if you haven't seen it. 105 yard kick all right be ready for the last one by the way but no before you do that yeah. before you do that it reminds me of when i was learning and i still haven't learned hockey so kraken fans i'll learn i'll learn i promise and we'll talk hockey but when i was first learning a little bit about hockey because my roommate was a boston bruins fan from boston and i didn't know about hockey and yeah. i was learning about hockey i got i used to get a kick for some reason do you do you watch hockey no I, is this i know nothing about it, hockey so what i'm about to say is going to fall completely on deaf ears yeah go ahead what i really liked this is like silly what what I really liked about hockey was when they pulled the goalie late in the game. Yes, I, that, that I know, right. And every, and every now and again you would see the opposing team's goalie flick one of the flick the puck out of the zone and it would go into yes, the other. Oh, I love <laughs> yeah, that. That is pretty cool, yeah. Oh. Yeah, because they're, they're... And it would just go sliding across, the, not very fast, it would go sliding across the ice and the other team would be like trying to race the puck to the goal, but the, the goal was empty. Yeah, it's empty. Yeah, because they had a man advantage, man up. A, that's right. And bam, and the goalie would score the goal. I used to love that. It's, it's not an extra Does that man. Still happen? It's not an extra man, but they just pull the goalie to be to, to go play offense, right? I mean, no, no, no. It's not like they have a, It's not like they have twelve, but they have eleven. Yeah, they do. Well, it wasn't twelve and 11. I don't Whatever know how many. it is. Yeah. No, yeah. You take the goalie out. Yeah. And then you put in another offensive player. Right. So you. Oh, I see what yeah, you're saying. It's yeah. not 12 on 11 or no, whatever. It's, it's 11 just, on 11. It, yeah, but but in terms of not including yeah. the goalie, you have that's an advantage. Right. You have an you're trying, advantage. You need to score. I'm so. sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's it's, right. But it is that's funny right. to watch I never them. thought of it that way. Very good, Hotshot. It is funny to watch them try to chase down. Like They, they know it's going to go in, and they're skating their ass off, and it's, they can't I love get that. there. I love that. It's pretty oh, funny. and then the one thing I would say, because you, you talked about a record. Did you see that somebody scored his 2,561st career three-pointer? Did you notice that over the week? No. 2,561 career three-pointers for. You want to take a guess? Steph Curry? Correct. Thank you. Second now all-time. He passes Reggie Miller. Amazing. And so who is he chasing as the all-time greatest three-point shooter? You should know that. You should know that. That should not be be hard for you. I would have guessed Reggie Miller because he played forever. How about another guy who played even longer? And played for the Sonics. Ray Ray, Ray, oh yeah, Ray, 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 yeah, Ray yeah. Allen. Okay, so here's the here's the reason I mention it: 2,561 career three pointers for Steph Curry. That's one more than Reggie Miller for second all time. Okay, he is now 411 three pointers 
behind the great Ray Allen. Okay? It took Ray. So how long did it take for each of those three men to score 2,561 career three-pointers? It took Reggie Miller 1,388 career games to put together 2,561 career three-pointers. Okay. Ray Allen, who of course scored 411 more, but we'll stop at 2561. He scored 2561 in his 1074th game. So Miller took 1,388 games. Allen only took 1,074 games to get to 2,561. Steph the other night, his 715th game. Oh my gosh. He's 32 years old. Insane. We've talked about how these guys shoot threes now. It's Ray, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> he's going to be like, who did we figure out? Ray, the, the guy Ray? that was taunting him at the free throw line? <laughs> Calvin okay. Murphy? He's going to have to taunt him for years and <laughs> right. years and years. You better get season Calvin tickets. Murphy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Oh, Impressive. He's got a lot more basketball. He's such a beast. Him, yeah. yeah, he's just, he's unreal. Yeah. All right, this is a quick one. Federal right. authorities seized hundreds of fake sports championship rings from a memorabilia store. So Immigration and Customs ICE, oh, they, the, um, they found 284 counterfeit sports championships rings at Friendly Confines Collectibles in really? Oviedo, Florida. This is not, you know, I, this no. is, just reporting the news. No. The rings were replicated as teams from the NFL, NBA, and WWE. So these guys were kind of stupid, these counterfeiters, because authorities were tipped off when they saw a Dan Marino Super Bowl championship ring, and they just, you know, that, that should have been their 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 first clue. I am going to reach across the... <laughs> That's a double whammy. Just... Florida and Marino in your face. Woo! All right, one more. <clears throat> when oh. was the last time somebody as fish would say socked you in the nose? Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. It does hurt, too. How do you fish back on the show? Like Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. But getting punched in the face really does change. change. It. It, change it sure it. does, yeah. yes. All right, people sent me this, but I'm not allowed to do it. Here's the headline. Naked Florida man arrested no. for stealing crashing no. police vehicle. No. Okay. But I'm, I'm not this doing This was a it. good show. This was a good episode 127. We're not going there. I, but, and I'm also not going to do Miami's aggressive peacocks to be relocated <laughs> after residents complain. I wish I could tell our listeners that the peacocks are scratching up sides of cars and leaving piles of poop everywhere, a lot like the citizens in that neighborhood. I'm not doing that story. Don't, don't you worry. All right. A South Carolina Stop couple. It. A South Carolina couple. Be nice. Facing indecent exposure charges after allegedly filming themselves engaging in adult acts inside a glass gondola on the Myrtle Beach Skywheels record show. Mm-hmm. See, it's, it's sort of like a Ferris wheel, but they're, you can picture. Oh, no, I thought, I thought of, of it as a Ferris wheel. Gondola is not, not a Ferris wheel? Uh, well, a Ferris wheel, you just sort of sit in it, and sometimes mm-hmm. you're outside. Yeah. This is a fully in, enclosed glass okay. structure that yes. you sit in. Yeah. But it goes around like a Ferris wheel. I can under, I you can got under, it? Yeah, I got it. All right, so police allege that Lori Harmon and her husband, Eric, both 36, were within the view of the public earlier this month when they decided to get busy. We did this. You did this. In the gondola? Yes. I think this came out on the 22nd. Didn't you just do in a recent episode a, sh- a show about somebody having sex in a Ferris wheel or in a, in a, in a clo- Yes, you just did this. Or did I read this somewhere? You must have read it. I, I think you've already done this story. I, I think, think you're going. I think you're going a little. I think the story's two woo-hoo. days old, though. 
I don't know. I feel like you just did a story that is very, very similar. But go ahead. Well, these guys have been these guys have been busted before, so maybe maybe okay. I did do one. The repeat offenders. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Apparently. So the, the explicit activity was recorded and uploaded to an adult website where it was viewed by Myrtle Beach Police Department officers. Not the worst gig in the world. Um, if you're a cop, I'll investigate, guys. Don't worry, I'll find. An arrest warrant does not identify the website or reveal how investigators discovered the clip. Other videos show them engaging in similar activities in a community pool at a Myrtle Beach resort. The Harmons have been charged with indecent exposure and participation of obscene material. The couple was released on bond from the Horry County Jail. Oh, I swear, <laughs> I read that. All right. Under the name Lucky Lacey, the Harmons posted about 140 explicit videos to something called the Pornhub. I hope I'm saying that correctly. <laughs> where, where their page had more than 11,000 subscribers and 2.7 oh, million views. All right. Yeah. So this this Hold wheel P O R <laughs> this this and. wheel opened up in 2011 and it's quote uh, not a carnival ride speak for yourself but a modern safe observation wheel towering almost 200 feet in the air all right oh and oh and it uh, it's a secure flight with glass windows and doors for optimal views and photography you got that right all right officials for the Myrtle Beach Sky Wheel have stated that unfortunately the ride is sold out for the rest of the year. <laughs> After, after reading this story, I finally understand the phrase, people in glass houses shouldn't show their stones. No, that's not the right phrase? Okay. I think we can all agree that the real victim here is the poor family that used the gondola next. God, it's awful. If I'm the couple's lawyer, I'm not saying- Not COVID safe? No. If I'm the couple's lawyer, I'm saying to the judge, look, a married couple who's been together 18 years who still want to touch each other, shouldn't that count for something? Something? No? All right. And finally, 11,000 subscribers, 2.7 million views. Don't get any ideas, Levy. We're doing just fine here. All right? I'm going to continue to podcast. Leave me alone. All right? That's it. Oh. <laughs> well, this is it. This is the swung song for Mitch Unfiltered as you know it from this studio. I got oh. a feeling. I got a feeling that a table, if the table arrives over the next couple of days, yeah. 127P will come to you from a different location within the home. Do I still have to go through the service entrance or am I allowed to go through the main door with the rest of the people? You're not, you got to go through the service entrance <laughs> and you're not allowed to look at any member of the family in the eyes. I know. That's why I have my mask and my sunglasses mask on. Mask and when sunglasses, I leave. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But you will not be schwitzing the way you schwitz here. So you're, oh. you're going to have to diet on your own now. God, <laughs> crap. That sucks. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, that's it. Episode 127. If you're listening to this and uh, you have not listened to Henry Plum, I'm really, really proud of that interview. I'm proud of him Good. and I'm proud of that interview. So take a listen. You need some time to do it, but I think you'll be fascinated by his story. Episode 127. Thank you to all of you who are patrons, non-patrons, sponsors, partners. We love you all. It's in the books. <laughs>